become our new banister uh, took up all the carpet in the hall uh is taken all the carpet off the stairs and is in the process of sanding them all down so we can have a nice runner running up them uh so yeah we're having some fairly significant renovations going on at the minute and it was all because my wife got a bit bored <laughs> that's terrifying <laughs> yeah i'm i'm staying out of the way i'm terrified of power tools especially angle grinders angle grinders are fucking terrifying <laughs> uh, that's hilarious oh dear Yes, I, I am not handy in the slightest. I, I do not wear the DIY trousers in this house at all. If, uh, if, I, if you put a hammer in my hand, I will hammer something into myself before I will hammer it into what it's supposed to be going into. Um, I can just about take a computer apart, um, but that's, that's about it. <laughs> I'm, I'm built for creativity and art, darling. Yeah. <sighs> I'm, I'm, I'm fairly handy, but you've got to really coax me into it. Yeah. Yeah, like something has to break for me to like. I don't, I don't like of my own initiative start like ripping things apart and rebuilding things for the sake of doing it. Like something yeah. has to be in need of repair. Then yeah. I like, then I put the, then I put the belt on and get to work. But like, yeah, it's never, yeah. it's never like occurred to me to create work for myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, um, my my wife has been watching a lot of like YouTube renovation videos and stuff which is sort of people getting old rusty pieces of crap and turning them into uh, new not rusty pieces of crap mm. um, and there was there was a show that James May did as well a while back where he basically got a thing took it to pieces and then tried to put it back together again it was surprisingly compelling viewing actually but oh, uh, I love that kind of stuff <laughs> But anyway, right, uh, we are here to talk about video games. Um, as usual, we're going to follow our three-part format today. We're going to start with a bit of talk of what little news has been going on recently, because obviously with the ongoing worldwide situation, to euphemistically refer to it as everyone does, um, there's not been a ton of things going on, but there have been a few things announced. So uh, we'll talk a bit about those first. Then we'll talk a bit about what we've been playing recently. And then finally, we will move on to our main topic for today, which is a return to a topic we've uh, we just last discussed about a year ago, I think, which is um, sort of favourite or most interesting RPG battle systems. Uh, so we've both got plenty to talk about there. So uh, look forward to that in the third segment. So let's kick off with the news then. So, first story is uh, very much one for you, because I know you're a big Toeplan fan. So, the first four Toeplan games coming to modern platforms have been announced. So, um, well, tell me more. Yeah, so uh, M2, who um, we've all come to love for their their exciting porting abilities, right? Yeah. <laughs> have uh, recently announced the first four titles that they're going to be uh, bringing to modern consoles from the old Toeplan back catalog. Mm-hmm. Uh which will be Flying Shark, which is also yep. known as Sky Shark, or Hishuazame uh, in Japan, uh, Twin Cobra, uh, Truxton 2, and Outzone. Um, I'm not really super familiar with most of these, mainly just Truxton 2, yeah. um, or Tatsujin O in, in Japan. Um, mm-hmm. But that game is so good. <laughs> so truxton is kind of the shooter that is kind of famous because the bombs are just like laughing skulls that like rip rip across the screen but um yeah truxton 2 is just um kind of an example of what i would call like the pinnacle of like super challenging but well-paced shooters like right at the edge before bullet hell started becoming a thing 
Yeah. Like, yeah. The, the, when, when I think about, like, the kind of deliberately paced shooters that, like, Raiden kind of was the champion yes, of, yeah. Um, yeah. Truxton is very much that. Um, mm-hmm. And what makes Truxton really interesting slash infuriating is it has a checkpoint system. Like, if you die, you don't start right where you died, like in most shooters. Oh, okay, yeah. So you actually have to be good at it. You can't credit, yes. you cannot credit feed Truxton because you'll never get past <laughs> the checkpoints. Um, so it is really challenging, uh, beautiful pixel art, really interesting aesthetic because... Um, it, it's just like a traditional kind of space atmosphere, but it really ties like the, the skull theme into a lot of like the enemy designs and the, and the items and backgrounds and stuff. So yeah, it's just a, just a really great shooter. Hmm. Cool. I think I've played flying shark before. Um, cause I think I had an Atari ST port of that. Um, so, I mean, God knows how, how faithful to the arcade original that was, but I, I yeah, that's definitely familiar looking at the screenshots of it now. And, uh, and um the sort of uh sort of world war one biplane aesthetic that's got going on I, i'm pretty sure i've played that i'm not familiar with the other state apart from truxton 2 by reputation i'm trying to i'm trying <clears> to think <throat> if flying shark was there was a game on the genesis in the states called uh fire shark and i think that's also the same game no oh, okay um and if that's the game i'm thinking of i freaking love it too because you're like a world war one biplane that gets like a flamethrower <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, according to Wikipedia, um, so take that with a pinch of salt, if you will. Um, Fireshark was the sequel that came oh, out in nineteen eighty nine. There yeah. we go. All right, yeah. So I've never played Flying Shark, but I have played Fire Shark, and that's mad good. That's one of mm. those like Genesis games that goes for like ungodly amounts of money, <laughs> and like it yeah. was like the worst release ever because it was like literally the the uh, the label on the cart is just white with black printing on it <laughs> it's not there's like no color graphics or anything it's like oh it's like you pay like 150 dollars for cart only copy of it and then you, you get this genesis <laughs> cart. It looks like a bootleg yeah 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 <laughs> it's it's awesome but yeah toplon stuff is just in general wonderful so this is great news that these games are going to be accessible again yeah yeah cool excited to to check them out for sure all right, uh, continuing on with shoot 'em up news. In fact, um, the Thunder Force AC, which is the arcade version of Thunder Force Three, is uh, coming to the West on May the twenty eighth. I think it's already out in Japan, and the use of Japanese text in it is pretty minimal. So if you have access to the Japanese eShop and you can't wait until May the twenty eighth, you can download it now, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, this uh, this is uh, an arcade version of an already monstrously difficult shoot 'em up. So don't expect to ever complete this ever. I guess. <laughs> 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 um but yeah like like the uh previous sega ages version of thunder force 4 which came out which is uh very good um they've they've added a few bits and pieces to this so besides the original ship that was in thunder force 3 uh they've also brought in a bunch of other ships from other games as well um so you've got the ships from i think thunder force 4 in there as well and uh, all sorts of other things so there's lots of different ways to play in different combinations of weapons and stuff and um again as with all the sega ages releases there's leaderboards so there's an expert uh leaderboard for playing on the default settings and then there's a freestyle leaderboard for anyone who's playing on any other combination of settings as well so it's mostly meaningless but um <laughs> it does mean you can sort of compare your scores against other people even if you're not playing on uh sort of super hardcore mode um and it's 
it seems that um, this is sort of following the the trend uh, that uh, G-Lock has been doing as well, which is they're providing a sort of virtual arcade cabinet option with this as well, uh, with a sort of curved CRT and um, sort of screen filters and so on. So if you want to play it as if you're standing in front of an arcade machine, you can do that, but then you can also make it fill the screen if you want to as well. So That's always fun. Yes. Um, okay. Uh, continuing on, um, we got a surprise announcement from Nintendo the other day. Uh, they just dropped this news on Twitter out of nowhere. They said a new Paper Mario game is coming to Switch. Um, and it's called Paper Mario the Origami King. Uh, and it's coming out on July the 17th. So that's pretty soon. So they've obviously been working on this on the quiet for a while. And it's, they just thought, hey, we may as well tell people about this. <laughs> um but yeah this this looks this looks cool so it's got it's got a combination of the sort of um flat 2d sort of sticker style of paper mario sprites but then it's also got um these sort of more three-dimensional origami figures as well so it seems like there's um a a core thing about it is kind of the conflict between 2d and 3d almost um for people who like the older versions of um of paper mario uh, things like the partner characters and stuff are back there's an interesting looking um sort of ring style battle system they call it um with sort of uh, positioning and all sorts of things so there's there's trailers and videos online for that now so looking I'll, good i'll be interested to see how this turns out because the last two paper mario games weren't particularly well liked because they weren't very traditional in terms of like the way their battle systems worked, um, there was a lot of focus on like single-use items. Yeah, part of the problem with the last couple of Paper Mario's is is something we talk about a lot, which is that people were coming to them wanting them to be something that they weren't. They were yeah. coming to them wanting them to be the uh, the N sixty four version or Thousand Year Door or whatever or the GameCube version, uh, and they weren't that, and so people got pissed off with it, but it's they were their own games in their own right and there are people who like them i know that my wife andy played through the the one on wii several times uh, mm-hmm. because she really likes that one uh, i know people who like sticker star on 3ds even though that's probably the the worst received of all of them i know people who've liked color splash on wii u so yeah it's it as with anything take it on its own merits when it comes out if it happens to be a bit like the older ones great if it doesn't then just well deal with it <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 i mean from my understanding like sticker star and color splash weren't weren't really trying to be rpgs they were more trying to be like adventure games with a combat yeah. mechanic so yeah. so if you think of them that way the the battles were more like puzzles to be solved and, and yeah. less like traditional rpg battles this new one appears to be going back to like the thousand year door style more of like a traditional rpg so we'll, we'll mm-hmm. see what happens with that all are valid but I know what my preference is. <laughs> yes. So. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, moving along. Uh, we've got a story that you pasted here that I haven't been following at all, but this looks uh, kind of interesting. Um, the game called Nexomon, uh, which is a sort of Pokemon-like from Vivo Interactive, is coming to consoles. Um, and that's coming to Switch, PlayStation 4, and Xbox One in summer 2020. Um, so yeah, tell, tell me a bit more about this. What's uh, attracted your attention on this one? I don't really know much about it either. I had never really heard of this until I saw this announcement this week. But mm-hmm. it just appears to be a fairly competent Pokemon-like. Um, yeah. It, with um, you know, uh, if you look at the field graphics and the town graphics, it just har- kind of harkens back to the 
uh, like late late DS Pokemon game, like like the last two D Pokemon games, like really decent yeah. high definition two D sprite work um, on a semi three D plane. Um, the battles kind of have that flash animation look to the enemy uh, enemy characters and the monsters. But yeah, I mean, if you if you like Pokemon style games, which we did a whole episode about how much we, how cool yeah. monster collecting RPGs are, it's just a new Pokemon style RPG with three hundred different monsters to collect and train and evolve and whatever what have you so i'm looking yeah. forward to giving this a try hopefully it gets a physical press from one of the houses uh p cube is involved in the publication so it's it's mm-hmm. most of the stuff they've been involved with has gotten physical copies if i'm not mistaken yeah um, yeah so yeah just just uh, never say no to a new monster collecting game if it appears to be competently made and this this looks like it's got yeah, a lot of sure. really good polish on it so yeah Cool. All right. Uh, continuing on, um, just recently released. If you're yet to jump on the Galgun bandwagon and you don't mind uh, going digital with it, both Galgun Double Piece and Galgun Two have been released in bundles that give you uh, almost all of the uh, downloadable content that's available for both of them. Um, worth noting that none of that DLC is particularly essential. It's all just new costumes and stuff. Um, and I believe in the case of Galgun, you don't get the ones that um the dlc packs that affect boob size um but yeah you have you have a lot more customization options with those in place uh so yeah if you get to play galgun or galgun 2 then uh that's that's a good way to to jump in and have a play with them when i first saw the news i was like oh maybe they'll get released in a bundle on a cart (laughs) no they're just this is digital bundles but it's still great that it's available yeah yeah well you know, some people are happy to go digital only, but uh, not me, not yeah. me, damn it. <laughs> anyway, um, returning briefly to the sort of Pokemon-like theme, um, th- there was uh, a game you spotted the other day called Cassette Beasts, uh, which is a really cool-looking game that's got a kind of combination of um, a sort of tilt-shifted cube-based backgrounds and then lovely uh, pixel art characters on top of it. So this is from a, uh, a studio called... Bitten Studio or Byton Studio, uh, who previously developed a Legend of Zelda clone called Lena's Inception. Um, and the concept of this one is that you're recording monsters' data onto cassettes and then playing back those cassettes to bring them into battles and so on. So, yeah, it sounds like it sounds like an interesting concept, and the 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 aesthetic of this is really nice, certainly. Yeah, it's like what if Pokemon plus Octopath Traveler. Yeah, yeah <laughs> like yeah. Like, the monsters are these beautiful sprites, very much in the classic, like, Game Boy Advance era Pokemon vein. And then they're, yes, pla- they're, pla- they're plastered on this 3D plane where they look like little cutouts. And, like, ah, oh, I just love it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's cool. So, uh, yeah, I really like the look of this. And, the, yeah, the, the, G- the GBA look is, yeah, spot on. Just sort of the, the, the kind of... I don't know, the, the, the kind of look at like the text and stuff as well is spot on for GBA as well. Just sort of the size of the pixels they're using it on. They've really sort of gone to town on making that look uh, authentic, but sort of also updating it with this 3D stuff in the background as well. So, yeah, very cool. 
All right, uh, moving on. Uh, Pico Interactive, who, if you're not familiar with them, they are a company that has been busily hoovering up rights for old games that have uh, sort of either been abandoned or the rights have been in limbo or the original license holders aren't doing anything with them. Um, they've acquired the rights to a game called Rage of the Dragons, uh, which is an old um, Playmore game. Um, that was originally supposed to be a Double Dragon series sequel of sorts, uh, but ran into some licensing problems, so it ended up as a uh, homage, uh, to say the least, and it's it's fairly notorious for that. Um, I'm not familiar with this at all, but apparently it is, it is reasonably well known in the fighting game community. It's uh, as, one of uh, my favourites. Sort of, yeah. Yeah, it, it looks like fun, and it's got sort of lovely lovely 2D sprite work and stuff in there and some gorgeous backgrounds. Um, so, yeah, that's cool. Um, the other interesting thing about this, of course, is that um, Pico Interactive uh, have been partnering with uh, Blaze, the manufacturers of the Evercade uh, handheld console that is coming out very soon at the time of recording. Um, there's already a Pico Interactive cartridge um, available for the Evercade when it launches. Uh, so hopefully this will find its way onto a future collection of the stuff that they've been doing on there as well. So yeah, all very exciting. All very exciting to see these uh, these old games getting another chance. I have a soft spot for this game in particular because when I used to collect for the Geo, uh, Rage of the Dragons was the first game that I I, act, I bought new for the Geo. So, like, I actually oh, had, like, wow. the full... I had, like, the full arcade set with, like, the stickers for the cabinet, like, the marquee mm. cards, like, everything. Like, it was one of my most prized possessions. Oh, I bet. Yeah. Yeah, I bet. Yes. Yeah, excited to check that out, for sure. All right, uh, continuing on, um, surprise, Scarlet Nexus, which was announced at the whole Xbox um, reveal thing a little while back, uh, is not actually an Xbox exclusive. It's also coming to PS4, PS5, and PC. Um, so this is the sort of uh, anime-style um, action RPG from Bandai Namco. So you, I guess I guess you could think of it as a spiritual successor to Code Vein in some ways. Um but it looks like it's got a more sort of uh, futuristic bent to it. There's, you're sort of fighting against mutants and that sort of thing. And there's a, a kind of sort of ruined city look going on about it. Whereas Code Vein was a bit more kind of gothic. Um, so yeah, this this is looking cool. Um, the Xbox version is going to make use of the new Xbox smart delivery system as well. So if you buy a digital version on current model Xbox Ones, if you then upgrade to um, Xbox Series X, uh, you then basically get the Xbox Series X version for free as well. So that's that's one pretty cool thing that Microsoft are doing, although obviously you can't do that with physical releases, uh, which is a bit of a shame. Um, but yeah, even so, if you if you are not upgrading immediately to the new Xbox, then you can buy this game now and then enjoy an enhanced version of it at some point in the future for free. Yeah, I re I remember when this was first announced at the uh, at the Xbox event, everyone was like, "Oh, why is this game Xbox exclusive?" I'm like, "Just wait. There's no <laughs> there's, there's no way this cell shaded stylized anime action RPG isn't also coming to PlayStation." And then like three, <laughs> and then like two, and then like two days later, I was like, "See, just relax, <laughs> relax." Yeah, God, no, no, nothing like that is ever going to be an Xbox exclusive, ever. Uh, <laughs> it's like sending it uh, off to die. 
Why is okay. I don't usually get into the console debate, but like, why does Xbox even still exist? Ah, uh, I've no idea. I've no idea. People seem to be feeling pretty positive about the new one. Um, tech, well, tech heads, tech heads are. That's the difference, yeah. right? Like, yeah. yes, it's already been like discussed. Like, yes, the Xbox Series X is a more powerful piece of hardware than the PlayStation Five is gonna be. Who mm. gives a shit? Like this is mm. this isn't PC town. Like console gamers are not power guy. Like at the end of the day, content is king. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is this is the same thing that sort of happened with the Unreal Engine Five reveal the other day as well, because the Unreal Engine Five um, demo was was very impressive. Yes, but like the the demonstration of what they were doing with it is it was. It was a character that was jumping up and grabbing ledges and climbing up onto the ledges and sliding in between narrow gaps and stuff like that. And this is all stuff we've seen like in the last couple of weeks in Unreal Engine 4. Um, so, I mean, again, a lot of devs are very excited about Unreal Engine 5 because apparently the sort of development pipeline um, that it opens up to them is is much more sort of streamlined and good for that. So, But that's all behind-the-scenes stuff. Again, as you say, content is king. It's 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 going to be all about what makes games made with that engine good, and that's nothing to do with the engine really. It's about the sort of creativity of the people who are actually making the games. So, yes. laymen don't get excited about tech. Yeah, like sixteen-year-olds yeah. going to GameStop don't get excited about tech. Mm-hmm. They just they want the game. They don't care about yeah. your, they don't care about your teraflops. Yeah, they just care about like playing video games potentially with their friends like that's you know like the games are what matters yes indeed and on that note then lovely segue into clubhouse games for nintendo switch so um clubhouse games or 51 worldwide classics as it's known elsewhere i'm very confused by the title of this worldwide um much like with the ds version that had three different names depending on where you lived in the world um but anyway this uh, this game is coming out uh towards the beginning of june i think um and it's a collection of board and parlor and card games for nintendo switch uh with a strong focus on local multiplayer although there are online multiplayer options for at least some of the games in the collection uh but one of the cool things about it is that they are um adding a a free app on the eShop for local multiplayer. So this is a bit like what Namco did with Pac-Man Versus on the uh, Namco Museum collection for Switch, which is where uh, only one person needs to own the actual game in order to start a multiplayer session. Everyone else can download this free app and then join that multiplayer session and enjoy the games. So this is basically... um, sort of a replacement for what the ds version did which it, which was that it had the download play functionality where you could connect two ds's to each other wirelessly um the sort of um the uh the player joining the game would then download just the data of the game that you're going to play um and you could play together using just one cartridge so this is sort of the, the the modern equivalent of that i guess but that's really cool news because it means that you can have multi-switch local multiplayer games with only one cart which is great i didn't also realize that this has got a budget price tag yeah yeah um so i just i i didn't know that i was like i don't know if i want to pay 60 bucks for this i'm gonna wait uh i just looked up the price at least in the u.s it's launching at 40 uh i will pay 40 dollars for drunken connect four on my 67 inch tv with my friends <laughs> like that's this is this is 
this is an investment that I will make. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I, I'm looking forward to this because this is something that um, that me and Andy will be able to play together as well. Because Andy plays yeah, some games, oh, yeah. but sort of anything that's like sort of uh, shooting or fighting. That obviously the sort of experience level between us is so different that it's it's not a huge amount of fun for either of us because it ends up being like either either one wins by luck or one of us ends up dominating the other one completely, and that's not really any fun after a little while. And, but and by that, I assume Andy wipes the floor with you every every time yeah yeah <laughs> yeah so I'm, I'm just looking at what uh, what it costs over here because I, I don't think it's it's very much over here either um yeah i i ordered the the physical release of this and it's yeah it's 29 pound 85 over here so a lot cheaper than sort of a your average new release um and it will have that sort of typical nintendo polish on it as well because it's a first party nintendo game so yeah looking forward to this a lot I don't know why I love Connect Four so much, but just the fact that there's Connect Four on it, I'm like, I'm in. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, Connect Connect Four is a great game for swearing at your friends on. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I've almost lost friendships over Connect Four. <laughs> oh, if they could fantastic. only figure out a way to get virtual Kerplunk in there, then we'd be, with like proper physics emulation. Then then yeah. it would be over. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, well, looking forward to this, and uh, depending on the on the online multiplayer support, we'll have to get a few games or something in as well for sure. Oh yeah, yeah. All right, okay. That's pretty much all the news we have to talk about for the minute. Unless there's anything else you want to bring up? No, I think that's it. These are dry dry times, understandably Indeed. so. But at least we got two awesome Pokemon likes coming yes, our way. Yes, with that's true. With different styles and aesthetics, can't can't yep. beat that. Indeed, and as you say, yeah. the possibility of Drunken Connect for in the very near future. So <laughs> that's what video games are for, damn it. Uh, right. Okay, let's take a short break then, and then we'll come back in just a moment and talk about what we've been playing recently. So we'll see you in a moment. Welcome back for our second segment. We're going to talk about what we've been playing lately. So, what have you been up to, Chris? I have been playing Blasphemous. Oh, okay. Yeah, so Blasphemous is really cool. Um, I mean, I, I hate to always be the guy who just describes games in the context of, like, other games, but real, <laughs> re really Blasphemous is an attempt to recreate some of the environmental feelings and kind of some of the key factors that define from software's soul game souls games like uh, dark souls and bloodborne etc yes and, and recreate that within the confines of a metroid style 2d open platformer mm -hmm. um gorgeous pixel art um really stiff challenge to the combat uh and i'm just really enjoying it um mm. it's kind of um it's basically creating uh kind of what you expect out of a open one of those map screen based open open field platformers um all the levels are interconnected there's new passageways to unlock as you like loop around um 
But kind of the big focus uh, in Blasphemous, as with Dark Souls, is to make enemy encounters... Um, each enemy encounter is, like, potentially dangerous. So, like, the fields... The fields aren't littered with, like, trash enemies. Yeah. Like, all combat is potentially pretty stiff. So, like, even, like, the garbage enemies that die in a few hits can take, like, like a solid quarter of your life bar away if they're, if yeah. they're carrying a big enough weapon. So, like, um, you have a... There's a parry mechanic, a dodge slide, and you really just have to learn the enemy attack patterns and timing and, and to use the parry correctly. Um, there are enemies that carry shields that really the only way to defeat them is to parry them. There's no, there's no way around it. Um, and it's just kind of creating this brutal oppressive atmosphere where like your survival is like a hundred percent predicated on your skill yeah. um which isn't something i've encountered in a 2d setting like this before mm-hmm. in, ter- in terms of like melee combat uh so it's it's been a really interesting game to play it's a really slow go for me because i'm just not great at this kind of stuff but um the world itself is so interesting from like a narrative and a visual perspective um, that I'm just compelled to keep like grinding away at it, even though I'm like senselessly bad at it. Oh, that's um, cool. The did they do like the souls thing of sort of burying lore in it and and sort yeah. of not making stuff too explicit and that kind of thing? Yeah. So like the the kind of the whole setting of Blasphemous is very much. I I don't want to say it's like Judeo Christian, uh, but like it's clearly inspired and shaped after like a very um like stern old testament kind of judeo-christian mythology it's like it's like shaped around that sort of imagery so there's a lot of like angelic imagery and like cherubs and um uh like the the main character you see is like faceless and he has one of those very like patrician masks that looks like it was like carved by like michelangelo like everything is like like, everything's covered in like crowns of thorns and there's a lot of like crucifixion imagery um it's it's just kind of like the darkest tones that you can extrapolate from that like old testament like biblical stuff Mm -hmm. um and the whole world is kind of shaped around that and everything is um like the whole world and the mythology is all kind of shaped around this kind of like apocalypse that happened, but like within the world, like people are grateful for the apocalypse. Like they call it the miracle. <laughs> and, and, um, and like you, you, like the player character are the quote penitent one. And like you, you start the game on a mountain of corpses that all look like you. Mm. Like the first scene is that. So it's like there's a whole lot of just like, lore just in the stage design and like every scene is very beautifully crafted with like a lot going on in the backgrounds and just like in dark souls like every item you pick up you can press a button and there's a, a lore like a story associated with it okay there are some items there's many different types of collectibles so like you get enhancements for your sword you got you have a rosary bead a, a, a chain of rosary beads and you collect rosary beads that have different effects so like what yeah. beat what beads you put on your rosary have different effects for your combat um and every one of those has a lore there's a whole subset of items that are lore only items which are uh i don't know how familiar you are with uh, reliquary 
in like the way that like in, in the church, like the reliquary or like artifacts mm. that are usually like yeah. connected to like saints or like miracles that have happened in the past. And oftentimes reliquary are, uh, actual physical remains of like a saint or an important figure like a like a finger bone or something so like there's a whole subset of items that you collect in this game that are like the finger bone of like saint francis the pious and like you when you get it it has no effect on the game it's literally just a collectible with like lore and then you like open it up and it'll have like his teachings or like what happened to him or like how he died like why he's important to the world it's like the, the sense of atmosphere and world building in this game are absolutely tremendous. Yeah. And everything is just steeped in like 70 layers of like ambiguity and mystery. And I just really appreciate it's like supreme dedication to like its world building and its aesthetic. Um, like the way the characters speak is very specific and it almost like reminds me of, um, you know, like, I always talk on here about how, how huge a fan I am of specifically the translation work that's done on uh, Yasumi Matsuno games, yeah. like uh, like Final Fantasy XII and Final Fantasy Tactics, and they they endeavor to have that kind of like old world speech, and they keep that consistent in localizations yeah. of Matsuno games. Blasphemous is a very similar feel, and then it does that with like the biblical sounding speech. Oh, that's like cool. everyone you talk to. It just sounds like you're being having like a sermon delivered to you, and like, <laughs> like, uh, like when people say goodbye to you, it's not just like good luck on your adventure. It's like, no, like, they, no, like they very like calmly and like sadly say like, like sorrowful be thy heart, penitent one, and they like they say stuff like that. It's just, I love games that are so dedicated to their their setting. Yeah, uh, like this is. It's just been a real pleasure to play even when i want to hurl the controller across the room (laughs) yeah and like there's little shit too like um like i don't know how familiar you are with uh the concept of like flagellation like self-flagellation in like extremely like hardcore biblical sects but like there are enemies that like self-flagellate like if Mm -hmm. you stand there long enough they'll kill themselves yeah like it's stuff like that that's like this is really cool like super dedicated to the aesthetic and the world, but also tied to the mechanics. Cause the enemies will literally like you see them hit themselves with their like barbed whips and you see them flash that they're taking damage. Like it yeah. registers, it's registers the damage they do to themselves. Like how neat is that? Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. So really, really enjoying blasphemous. Um, it's a slow go, but I also feel like it might be a short game. Mm-hmm. Cause like in my first playthrough, like at the end of the day, after playing for like an hour, like I brought, the map up and i was like it was like 10 percent of the map completed already after like one hour so i think it's a very it's a very small map and a very short game but then the the length is really comes from the challenge because you have to do everything like thirty thousand times and the checkpoints are like super far apart and um if you die um when you're reincarnated at your last checkpoint you're in a different state your your mp bar is cut um is cut down and you can't you gain experience at like 50% rate until you return to the point of your death and like reclaim your spirit. So it's got all that kind of stuff in it. So I think a lot of the length of the game really comes from the challenge and like beating your head against it until you memorize the patterns of each room. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, really, really liking it. It's got its own unique identity. Um, it's pulling stuff that's worked from other games and and just kind of being very successful example of what it is. Yeah. Sounds really cool. 
Sounds really cool. I know. I, I remember when this first came out, there were a lot of people who were making very happy, positive noises about it. Um, I, I haven't looked into it that much, but I, I just know. I just know it is the the pointy hat man game. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly. <laughs> it, I mean, it's like super disclaimer: it's not for everybody. Yeah. Um, the aesthetic of it is very oppressive, very mm-hmm. violent. It's gory. It's like death everywhere, and like just like. Uh, impaled bodies on spikes and like the backgrounds and like you like one of the bosses is just like a giant like fetus yeah. that, like it's like if you're not into this kind of like like if you didn't listen to a lot of heavy metal in high school you're probably yeah. not prepared for this game yeah but uh i can see why people might be off put by it. in fact like i remember seeing a lot of um, discussions about it in like forums and stuff and people have just been like this game like looks like it's cursed like this game yeah. looks like a creepy pasta. Like it looks like a game that if you play it, you will be haunted. Yeah. Like, and that's kind of the feel it has. Like it's really unsettling. So like if you're not into that, uh, like I don't play it. <laughs> but but uh, but I am really enjoying it. Like I'm a horror guy, so like I'm really just loving it, and they they get it. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well, it sounds like they've really nailed the sort of atmosphere and feel of that. So. Cool. All right. Is that all, or is there anything else you've been up to? I've also been playing the new Sakura Wars. Oh, yeah. Tell me more. Which is pretty amazing. Um, Good. So Glad to hear it. I love Sakura Wars. Um, I've been obsessed with Sakura Wars or Sakura Taizen, the franchise, since I was like 13. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we've only ever gotten two Sakura Wars games translated in the West. Uh, which I think, th- which is this new one, and I think the fifth one. Yeah, that was the Wii one, right? Yeah, it was on Wii and PS2. It was localized uh-huh. as uh, Sakura Wars So Long, My Love. Yeah. Um, Sakura Wars is really interesting because it's essentially a visual novel. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's the idea of it is it's a visual novel, but it's produced with a massive budget that like normal visual novels would never hope to be able to have. Mm -hmm. So like, instead of being a visual novel in the traditional sense that you're like making menu selections and like, it's a visual novel, like where you actually are running around in a 3d world. It's not like, it's not like, Oh, I've found what's her name's magazine. I should bring it to her. And then it's just like a fade away. And then the next scene is that it's like, no, you find what's her name's magazine, then you actually have to go in the world and run and take it to her. So it's like yeah. almost like a fully interactive visual novel produced with a high level budget. So it's it's kind of cool in that respect. Um and it just by doing that, it's more intriguing to me than other traditional visual novels, just because that added level of interactivity helps me feel a bit more connected to it. Yeah. Um and the choice making and, and the exploring the world. Like, I feel more like I'm playing a game. So, like, I get more into it. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. very pretty, the new one. Like, reflective surfaces. Um, like, one of the first, the first scene where you get to control your characters, like, in, like, a bus station. And just the, the, the floor is, like, this polished marble. And it's, like, reflecting from, like, the skylights above. Mm. And it's a really pretty game. Just well made. Um, the characters are charming. Yeah, it's got a very distinctive sort of character design about it as well, hasn't it? Yeah, I, I find. Yeah, the characters were designed by I don't know the artist's name because I'm not a huge fan of his specifically, but it's the guy who did Bleach, 
which oh, okay. is a very very yeah. popular anime slash manga. Yeah. So like he's very well known. I don't like Bleach, so I don't really I'm not <laughs> I don't know him very well personally. Yeah. But um yeah, like fans of that, you know, of him are, you know, he has a very distinct style. Um so that was kind of a big selling point for this game that he was doing the character design. Um but yeah, the whole thing of Sakura Wars is, um, of all Sakura Wars is the notion that it's a steampunk, like, 20s setting where there's demons, like, attacking stuff, and the only way to fight the demons are these spirit-powered steampunk robots, um, that are powered, that are piloted by people who have spirit energy abilities, um, and everyone, in who can do this they are also required by like the outfits that give the um the robots to them that they also have to like not only protect people physically by fighting with the robots but like they also have to be engaged in the world around them artistically in some way mm -hmm. in order to also bolster the hearts of the people that they protect yeah. so um traditionally in Sakura Wars that has always manifested itself as um a theater troupe. So mm -hmm. uh, during the visual novel segments, you are being the manager of the theater and like helping to run the theater and make these characters interact. Um, there's obviously a romance element where like, there's always like the girls that are in the theater troupe and you're the only guy. And like, <laughs> you have to like, you know, you can make the, you know, have, try to romance the one you like the most and there's different endings for each girl depending on you know who you've achieved love with um <laughs> uh and then the social interaction elements very similar to what people understand from persona carry into the combat yeah um traditionally sakura wars has been a turn-based strategy game uh the new one is like a hack and slash action rpg but it's still the same idea so whoever you are building the greatest rapport with will perform best with you in the action segments, have uh, bolstered stats, different moves. Um, so it's just neat. Uh, it's just, it's a, it's a comfort food game. It's just yeah. very, very charming. And like the characters are very sweet and well-meaning. And, and I just, I'm just kind of enjoying getting lost in the world of this beautiful steampunk Japan. And it's just, cute and nice and yeah the and the girls are nice and quirky <laughs> and yeah it's just just a really cool time and if you love the franchise the this game is very specifically it's the new one uh which is just called sakura wars in the west but in japan it's shin sakura wars like new sakura wars it's um it's designed to kind of be a, a tribute to and celebration to the, the history of the franchise. So the idea is that it takes place 10 years later of the events of the original five. Yeah. Um, so the, the manager of the theater that you work for is like one of the girls from the original cast, like just 10 years older. Okay. Um, and um, you can collect bromides in the game, like uh, lunar style yeah. of like the girls, but not just the girls in the new game. You can find bromides of the characters from the old games, like all throughout the history of the series. Oh, cool! So like, there's lots of little like nods to the to the history of, and, and legacy of the series because Sakura Wars has been around since the Saturn, um, and there's been anime series and movies. Like it's a very popular franchise in Japan, um, but it's less known here. 
So yeah, just just really enjoying that. It's kind of a feel good thing. But it is uh, one of those games where you can go hours without really encountering what would traditionally be considered gameplay. Yeah. So so yeah. be be very aware that you'll spend like two hours talking to people. Yeah. So that you and then have like a twenty minute action sequence. <laughs> it's yeah. essentially uh, the game is structured like an anime. So like yeah. there's actually there's actual episodes. Okay. And um. It plays out just like an anime. So, like, you, like, every, there's a, there's a conflict or a problem that needs to be solved through the visual novel segments. And then each episode is punctuated by the action sequence. Like, oh no, the demons are here just as we're about to solve the problem. And then, <laughs> and then, like, it's literally structured on purpose to be like watching an anime series. Yeah. There's, an, there's an intermission where the commercial would be that allows you to save. And then the next segment plays, then your action sequence. It's, it's very cool. If you like anime, it feels mm-hmm. like playing an anime that you also get to make interactive choices and lead the and lead the the narrative with. So it's really cool. Cool, sounds great. Well, I I picked up a copy of that, but because uh, I'm going to dive into the series at some point. But uh, yeah, I'm I'm glad to hear that it's it's come out well. A, a lot of people were sort of a bit worried about this, but it's sort of shift from strategy RPG to action gameplay. But it sounds like they've really done a good job with it. So that's great yeah. to hear. Yeah, and the action gameplay is good, so it's mm. not you know it's yeah. not like crappy. It's it's good, but it's not the focus of the game. So yeah. in a yeah. lot of ways, it doesn't matter that much. Also, if you've ever wanted to play, learn how to play Hanafuda cards. Oh, okay. There's a, yeah. there's a there's a whole Hanafuda card mini game in it. Yeah, where you can play Hanafuda cards with the girls. Because um, one of the coolest things about it is, even though it's like 1920s steampunk, you have like a cell phone. <laughs> but it's like it's it's green screen. Yeah. Like uh, like the Pip Boy in Fallout. Oh, cool! And um, when you when you pull it up, it powers on and it makes that like like hum that like an old tube, <laughs> that like a, that like an old tube television makes when you turn yeah. it on. Like your cell phone does that. Yeah. it's it's oh. super awesome. <laughs> That's awesome. I love that noise. <laughs> yeah, so do I. It's really cool. Yeah, so that, I mean that's the Core Wars. Um, really enjoying it so far. Cool. Is that everything for you then, or anything else? No, that that's pretty much been it. I mean, I've been chiseling away at Snack World, but we've talked we've talked about Snack World so much on the show already. It's not even yes. Close. Oh, S- Snack World is wonderful. I love it. So, but yes, as you say, we've we've talked about it a lot so far. But uh, I'm sure there'd be more to say in the future. Yes. Right. What have I been up to then? Uh, I have been playing uh, Manakemia, uh, but I'm going to talk a bit about that in our third segment. So I won't say much about that now because the the battle system in that is, is part of what I want to talk about. Um, other stuff that I have been playing. Uh, again, this is this is something we, we're probably going to talk about in an upcoming episode um, on 3D platformers. But I've been playing A Hat in Time recently, uh, which my wife Andy got for my birthday Um and uh yeah i i I thought i'd check it out as a sort of uh, game on the side uh to to all the atelier stuff that i've been doing recently i've been absolutely loving it it's a wonderful game wonderful it it really really is yeah um switchport is a little bit dodgy um like the 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 sort of 2d backgrounds uh on the loading screens are really pixelated and the load times are massive But, but once you start playing it doesn't matter it's one of those games where there's like a few technical issues and like you start playing and you see hat girl skipping around and all the wonderful animation she does and you just don't give a shit because it's such a lovely experience um but yeah i'm i've been super impressed with this like their intention with this was always to um 
take the sort of best ideas of classic 3D platformers, uh, particularly in the sort of Mario 64, Mario Sunshine style. Uh, so that means large, expansive levels that you can explore pretty openly. Uh, it means really varied objectives um, and a, a lot of personality to the main character without them actually saying anything. Um, so yeah, I, I've been especially impressed by the fact that on no two levels in this game, I'm, I'm probably about maybe two-thirds of the way through the, the base game so far, on no two levels so far have I had to do the same thing. So, like, the first level that's on, uh, like, Mafia Island, you have all sorts of different objectives to do, and that, that feels very much like a sort of Mario Sunshine level. It feels quite like the sort of Delfino Plaza area on Mario Sunshine. It's sort of a nice sunny place that's modelled after a small town and that sort of thing you can explore, and there's hidden things around the place, and that's all very nice. Um, but then you go into the second stage, which is all based around movie sets, and, like, the first part of that you're exploring the actual sets themselves but then for the rest of that chapter you're actually starring in the movies so there's um there's like a scene where you have to solve a murder on a train there's a scene where you're running through a train that is exploding and you're trying to defuse a bomb on it um there's a scene where you're running around a sort of small but open cityscape trying to gather a fan club and then there's um regarded as one of the most irritating levels in the whole game uh, is called the big parade which is where you're in that same cityscape but the entire floor of that place is covered by like your adoring fans and you're leading a parade of uh, musicians behind you who are constantly following the exact path you took so if you stop they will bump into you and hurt you uh, and so what happens is you effectively end up playing snake on the rooftops of uh, <laughs> of this little city with this crowd of owls playing trombones behind you as you're leaping around trying to find these tokens and gems and stuff while this wonderful sort of 1920s big band music is playing in the background and it's just such a such a magical experience i absolutely love it yeah it's it's fantastic and there's Although it's inspired by uh, sort of those older games that I've mentioned, they've obviously taken a lot of cues from some more modern stuff as well. Like, there's, there's a surprising amount of Final Fantasy XIV in here, for example. Oh, yeah? Yeah, like, um, a, lot of the, a lot of the boss fights are very much designed in the way that they might be if, if Final Fantasy XIV was an actual action game. So you've got things like the visible telegraphs on the floor. Sure. You've got like being tethered to things and that meaning something and sort of having visual cues that mean you have to do something specific. Um, but yeah, there's, a, there's a, a surprising amount of that in the game throughout and sort of interpreting what all these various marks mean and figuring out exactly what to do. But it, it always feels really intuitive. There's there, There's been no situations where the game has had to sort of explicitly take you aside and say, look, no, this is what you need to do here. This is the button you need to press. This is the move you need to do here. It's all so intuitive. Like the whole game doesn't even start with a tutorial. It just throws you straight in. Occasionally gives you a button prompt on the screen to tell you how to do a specific move. But from that, the actual control scheme is so intuitive and enjoyable that you can you can just have so much pleasure from exploring those levels. It's great. I absolutely love it. Um, and so when we when we come to talk about three um, D platformers again in the near future, which will be an upcoming episode, I don't know if it'll be the next one, but it will certainly be an upcoming episode. Um, there's going to be a lot to talk about there for sure. Have you, you, you've, play, you you've played a little bit of this, haven't you? Have, yeah. How far oh, did yeah. you get? Not super far. I just kind of beat the first level in its entirety. Like I did all the challenges mm. in the first level. So okay. Like I have, I have an idea of like what it is. 
Um, but no, I haven't. I haven't got done like the 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 second stage of describing with the movie stuff yet. Yeah. Ha- have you encountered the Nyakuza yet? Because it, what's no. what's what's amazing about this game, right, is just the puns. Yes. The puns everywhere. <laughs> so like, there's a kind of a running theme in the game of like mafias, like period, yeah. not just the mafia, but like varying cultural mafias. Yeah. Yeah. So it, like, it is a race of people who are all called mafia. Yeah, and their name is Mafia, and they're like Mafia. Do this. Mafia likes to punch things in the face. <laughs> and like, correct me if I'm wrong, but every planet you go to has like a different enemy group that's kind of a different mafia. So like, um, they, they show up, they show up around the places. Like, okay. like, like the the first the first chapter is the Mafia planet, right? But they right. sort of show up in other places. So like, when you go to the third world, which is the sort of horror themed world, you'll see this occasional Mafia running around, but they're normally. Uh, getting into some sort of situation that they really can't cope with, like they're being sucked into a possessed painting or something like okay. that. But they, but they tend to show up in most situations. And like, <laughs> and like those guys, those mafia guys, are like weirdly based on the Russian mafia. Not yeah. not like a traditional Italian mafia like you'd think. It's very weird. Um, but then later, in later levels, there's a Yakuza group, yeah. like a riff on the Yakuza, but they're cats. So they're, <laughs> they're, they're the Nyakuza with an N. Yeah. <laughs> Which yeah, yeah, is like the Japanese like onomatopoeia for the sound a cat makes. Yeah. So like like it's just the best pun. Like as soon as I found out about the Nyakuza, I was like, this is it only gets better. And like there, there, there are so many gags in this game and they, they always land as well, which is great. They've like really thought about how to make these jokes work and not feel super forced. They, it is genuinely funny. This is something we were talking about kind of when you first started playing the game, but I think it's also important to talk about the roots of this game. Mm -hmm. So, like, this game, Hat in Time, originated on the Something Awful forums. Yeah. Which was always, like, in the years before memes were even a thing, like, the Something Awful forums was this amazing repository for humor. Like, always has been, like, dark, sarcastic humor, but also kind of smart. So, like, if you're familiar at all with, like, the the cadence and, like, kind of the atmosphere of the Something Awful forums, um, you can kind of get an understanding for, like, where, like, the sense of humor and, like, the cleverness, like, that veins throughout A Hat in Time comes from. Mm. Because it it was, like, born of this atmosphere. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I am absolutely loving it so far. Like I say, I'm about two thirds of it, two thirds of the way through it so far. Uh, I've just unlocked the um, the Death Wish um, difficulty level, which lets you go back to previous stages and do sort of new objectives that are a lot more difficult. Um, and then once I finish the main game, there's also the um, Seal the Deal and the Nyakuza Metro um, stages that are added on as sort of separate things to play through as well. So. I got I got a fair fair way to go still yet, but uh, I will definitely be writing about it when I'm done with it. And uh, as I say, we'll be talking about it on a future episode of this podcast as well. So that's cool. Um, what else have I been up to? Um, I've also I also finally made some time to play through uh, Bloodstained: Curse of the Moon, which is the the eight bit spin off to uh, Koji Igarashi's uh, sort of um, reimagining of old school Castlevania formulas. So this was the game that was made by Inti Creates that was originally going to be like a like a backer bonus, but they they released it separately. Um, and it's a loving homage to Castlevania three in particular. It's so good. <laughs> it's it's fantastic and. I, I I like it more than the old Castlevania games, I don't mind admitting it, because the old Castlevania games are good, and they're super influential, and they're still worth playing and so on, but what Curse of the Moon does is it takes all of the things that the Castlevania games sort of do okay yeah, in a few circumstances, 
and it actually does them well yeah um so it, it it takes all the things that sort of konami were kind of kind of sort of struggling a bit while they were still defining what this genre meant and what this type of game meant and so on and inti creates have used the last 30 years of game design knowledge that they've that they've picked up and that the industry in general has picked up to sort of polish off those rough edges and make something that's incredibly satisfying and enjoyable to play and um i, th I think i think having having had the context of playing through those earlier castlevania games before i played this was really helpful which is partly why i've held off actually playing this for so long mm -hmm. but now that i've played through sort of definitely well not all the way through but i i have played the first four castlevanias fairly substantially i i felt that i could go into this with a pretty good a good understanding of what castlevania meant and what this was supposed to be paying homage to and yeah i i feel like i've really appreciated this game a lot more as a result but um yeah, it's it's got a lot of those those things that Inti Create specifically is very good at. Like the boss fights are a particular highlight of this. Yeah, they're all um, they're all visually impressive, uh, but sort of working within like the palette limitations of the NES. So it the the intention for this game was always what we talk about and describe as enhanced retro, which was the idea of um, taking what you would like to remember nes games looking like rather than what they actually look like <laughs> and so you, you, it, it's it's using the color palette of the nes but then it's also adding lots more layers of parallax scrolling it's running in widescreen it's got massive sprites that the nes wouldn't have been capable of it's not got sprite flicker or that weird sort of garbage that appears down the right hand side of the screen um yeah and so that means that sort of the boss encounters it can bring in these huge enemies who have uh really distinct learnable attack patterns um and it's it's just a real pleasure to fight them because it's it, it they're all a puzzle to solve they're all a puzzle to solve they're all a pattern to spot and um they require you to sort of see an opening and uh, and take it so that none of them are the sort of ones where you can just sort of go in there and hack and slash blindly none of them are like say castlevania second boss where you can just repeatedly drop holy water on the floor and kill it before you've it's even shot anything at you <laughs> um but then I, I was I was surprised and impressed to discover quite how replayable this game is as well. Oh, so sure. There's, there's lots of different ways that you can play this. Um, so in the normal mode, you start as the character Zangetsu. And as you complete the first four stages, um, you meet various other characters from um, from the Bloodstained series. So there's Miriam, who is the protagonist of uh, Ritual of the Night. There is Alfred, who's an alchemist character, who's also in Ritual of the Night. And then there's Jeebel, who is definitely not a vampire, uh, but is the main antagonist of Ritual of the Night. Um, and when you meet them, you have the option of talking to them to recruit them, which means you can then switch between them, Castlevania 3 style, uh, or you can kill them. Uh, which means that Zangetsu absorbs their powers and gets some sort of special ability like a double jump or an air attack or something like that. Uh, or you can just ignore them, which means you just walk past them and you just carry on playing as just Zangetsu. Um, and depending on what order you do that in, whether you save all of them, whether you kill them or that sort of thing, you unlock different game modes after that. So the one I unlocked because I, I recruited all of them on my first playthrough because i thought that's that was the only thing you could do the first time i played yeah this. I, I had no this is all news to me you're delivering because yeah. like I, yeah. why would i ever choose not to recruit them yeah <laughs> exactly yeah I, I didn't notice until i looked up afterwards but yeah I, I recruited them all first time through and when you when you beat the game with that you unlock what's called nightmare mode and what happens in that is that you you play through the game again but you start without zangetsu 
Um, so you've got Miriam and Alfred and Jeebel from the beginning, so you can make use of their very special abilities, which in turn allows you to reach secret areas you couldn't reach as just Zangetsu. That makes sense. Um, but it also means you've only got three characters of sort of life bar to get through before you get killed. And all of the bosses have been beefed up quite considerably as well. So um, they all take a lot more damage and they all have more intense attack patterns. Um, so you have to most of them don't require you to completely relearn the encounter most of them are just like uh like if, if the boss throw things at you for example it'll throw more things at you um but in the case of like the the third boss which is like a fire breathing dragon type thing um the timing on that is a lot more precise on nightmare mode so it just makes it even more satisfying when you can actually pull that off because the the sort of window of opportunity is so tight in there mm. um and then the entire last stage of nightmare mode is completely different with a completely different final boss and so on uh, and then the opposite of that if you kill everyone um is you then play on what's called ultimate mode which is basically nightmare mode but playing as just zangetsu so you have all the beefed up bosses and stuff like that, but you've only got this one character and his particular abilities to, to get through that as well. Uh, and then when you've done all that, there's a boss rush mode as well, where you have to get through all of the bosses in the game, the normal mode incarnations with just one life. So there's, yeah, there's a surprising amount to do in this game. And like a single playthrough takes two hours. Um, so there's like a pretty substantial amount of stuff to get through in this. I've been really impressed with it. One of the things that I really love about this game, uh, which is something I also was just kind of trying to talk about with Blasphemous that this game does beautifully, is uh, this kind of silent narrative through stage design. Yes, um, yes. So, like, wordlessly, it tells, like, a pretty great story if you like the way the stages progress, which is exceptionally impressive because of, like, the 8-bit nature of the visuals. But, like, just using the, the example of, like, the first level, right? Like, you start outside in, like, traditional Castlevania. Then you make your way through this, like, haunted train station, like, room yeah. by room. Then you finally make your way to the platform. Then there's a section where you're on the train. And then the final boss is the haunted engine of the train. Yeah. Like, just, like, that kind of transitional storytelling just through the backgrounds and, like, the way you make your way through the stage is really brilliantly done. Yeah. And all the levels yeah. are that way. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's absolutely fantastic. So, like I say, the 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 sort of new final stage you get on Nightmare Mode is very good for this as well because there's there's a bit where the the three characters you're controlling they split up and they each have to do their own specific thing to unlock a door to the final boss. That bit's really cool as well, and it's taking you through all sorts of really interesting designed areas and and bosses and that sort of thing, and all sorts of interesting things you can interpret from that as well. So yeah, yeah, superb game, superb game, really really cool on that. I, I know you're fairly lukewarm on Ritual of the Night so far, but because you, you played it when the Switch version first came out, yeah. and it wasn't particularly well optimized and that sort of thing. I mean, it's I, not I've just that. Mm. Like, I just literally didn't think it was great. Like, it, was, I'm yeah. not, like, it wasn't really... when I Like, my lukewarmness on Bloodstain really doesn't have much to do with the, the performance aspects of it at launch. It just more has to do with the fact that it's just not a great open-world 2D platform. Like, the, the issue with it is... That I have with it is... Um, you know, obviously the Egovania games are amazing. Like all the Egovania mm. games were amazing, but like I'm I'm in the minority in that I think they were diminishing returns. Yeah. Um like yeah. a lot of a lot of people really liked the the very last one on the on the DS. I didn't. I didn't think yeah. it was very good at all. Um uh so I haven't really loved Egovania games since like 
the first one on the DS. I thought it was like the peak of all of his work, and and, and then no, I thought it was enough. I thought it was kind of downhill from there. Mm-hmm. And, and and the issue with like Bloodstain for me was like obviously I was super excited about it, like backed it on Kickstarter immediately, but. What had happened since the glory days of the Egovania on the Game Boy Advance and the DS and the, on the DS was since then the indie sphere has taken this genre yeah. and done yeah. stuff with it that is just above and beyond the Egovania stuff. So mm. like uh, like I like Bloodstain. I think it's a competently made game and it's perfectly great and it, it evokes the aesthetic that's supposed to and it's very good. But just like from a gameplay perspective, I've played so many, so many open structure 2D platformers from the indie sphere historically. Stuff like Blasphemous, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, stuff like uh, the Guacamelee games. Like the combat in the Guacamelee games is just so satisfying. Like the the dimension shifting, the puzzles as part of the environments. Like the the way the indie sphere has transformed and innovated within this genre has made. Bloodstain feel very stagnant. Oh, I see. Right. It's just not a ton mm-hmm. of fun to play because yeah. it's not doing anything super differently. Mm-hmm. And I know it's not Ego's fault, but like it just feels like a ripoff because it's like it's not Castlevania, but it is Castlevania. Yeah. It's like it's like <laughs> it's like super trying to have the spirit of Castlevania, but because it's not Castlevania, it doesn't quite feel right. And it's just yeah. There's a lot about it that's great and worth celebrating, and I'm glad it exists, and it's a good game, but I just didn't fall in love with it the way I wanted to, because mm-hmm. as I was playing it, I was like, oh, well, there's just there's been more, excit- like, more exciting games in this genre in the past ten years. Yeah. So that's, yeah. that's why I don't love Bloodstained. I like Bloodstained. Uh-huh. I don't hate it. I'm not going to rip on it, but it, it just... It's not as satisfying now because we've seen better. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. Well, uh, anyway, I've I've just started playing through Ritual of the Night now, um, so I'll I have more to say on that in the near future. But uh, I've enjoyed what I've played so far. Um, I I don't think I've played anywhere near as many of these games as you have. So I've probably I'm probably probably coming to this with a slightly different perspective to you, and that that may be why I'm sort of responding fairly positively to it so yeah. far. But oh, uh, I mean, it's it's good. Like, like yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Don't, don't take what I just said as me saying this is a bad game. Do not no, play absolutely. It. It's an exceptionally well-made, competent, and enjoyable version of what it is. Mm-hmm. It's just not as exciting as I've come yeah. to expect after years of innovation in the genre. <laughs> Yeah, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. But anyway, I'll have more to say on that in the near future. So they just um, added the Zangetsu mode too. I think they just patched that in like a week ago. Yes, they've they've patched it into the um to the PS4 and PC versions, and I think the Switch version is coming like next week or something. Um, and it they, it's got the randomizer mode in there as well, so you can play it through and with sort of various randomizations of enemies and item placement and quests and that sort of thing as well. So that's going to add some interesting replay value. I've got a few streamer friends who've been quite excited about returning to it with that mode on. Yeah, because rand- randomizers are super popular with uh, like streaming and let's players. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Isn't Zengetsu voice acted by David Hayter or like yes. someone someone who's popular? Yes, yes, it's David Hater. Like I, I, I just got to the first Sangetsu boss fight. Um, That's a good fight. Uh, yeah, it's a super difficult fight. I, I wasn't ready for that at all. I was like, yeah. whoa! I, I, I'd like sailed through the beginning of the game. Like this is fine, and then he absolutely decimated my ass repeatedly. That was the first for like a whole evening. Big challenge in that game. Yeah, That's um, one of my problems with that game is that the boss fights are wildly uneven. 
Yes. Like some <laughs> some of the boss fights in that game are exceedingly well designed. Like the Zengetsu fight. Like yeah. challenging, great patterns. But then some of them you can just cheese your way through without even having to dodge anything. And it's yeah. just like it's 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 not it's not even. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, if you look back at Symphony of the Night, there's a few bosses in that that you can cheese in that way as well. Oh, there, for, so. for sure. For <laughs> sure. So he's, he's just being authentic to these roots. Yeah, oh, there you go. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, yeah, that's that's pretty much everything I want to talk about in this segment now. Like I say, I'll talk a bit about Manakimi in the next section because my main focus on the battle systems we're going to talk about today is going to be the Atelier Iris games because that's what I've been immersing myself in recently. Um, so we'll take a short break now and we'll return and we will talk about those battle systems in just a moment. So we'll see you then. Welcome back. For our third segment, we decided it would be nice to return to a favourite topic of both of us, which is uh, RPG battle systems. So we want to talk about some of our favourites or some of the ones we found most interesting or ones that have kind of struck us as uh, sort of influential over the years, all that all that sort of thing. So they're not necessarily the best ones, but ones that we just want to talk about for one reason or another. So um, hopefully we won't go over any of the ground that we've done before. I've actually got the old episode open in front of us here, so I don't repeat myself. Um but yeah, so, uh, well, where would you like to begin? Uh, well, I think I would like to start with one of the systems that as soon as we were done recording the first episode on this topic, I immediately banged my head on the desk and was like, how did I get through a whole episode about RPG mechanics and not mention <laughs> this game? So I want to talk about Valkyrie Profile. All right, yes. Um, or, or what is commonly referred to as a formation battle system. Okay. <laughs> um, so... Valkyrie Profile is an RPG by Triace. Uh, Triace will come up frequently when we talk about interesting RPGs because Triace has ever been an experimental RPG house, mm -hmm. always looking to kind of innovate with mechanics and design. Um, that's always been their MO. Yeah. Um, Valkyrie Profile is after Star Ocean, which is their most famous series, um, perhaps their second most famous series. Um, and the whole idea of Valkyrie Profile was that the dungeons in Valkyrie Profile are side-scrolling action games. And then when you attack an enemy, uh, you transition to a traditional battle sequence. Yeah. Um, the way the battle sequences are set up in Valkyrie Profile is uh, basically all mapped to the original PlayStation controller with the diamond arrangement of buttons that the original PlayStation popularized. Yeah. Um, you have a party of four characters. Each character is mapped to one button. So one character is on triangle, one character is on X, one on circle, one on square. Now, unlike a traditional turn-based battle system, there is no there is a menu you can pull up, but you have to pull it up specifically. Like it doesn't the menu doesn't come up when it's time to act. Right. Um, characters are simply mapped to those buttons. So if you press the button that the character is mapped to in the formation that you set up in the menu that character will simply execute their physical attack. Yeah. Really, really simple. Um, where the complexity comes in is that every character in the game, of which there are many to recruit, have a different attack. Um, so the, the guy, like the one of the main characters who's important in the narrative has like a giant, like 
Final Fantasy VII style, like sword that's bigger than him, right? So his yeah. deal is a huge lumbering swing that does massive damage, but takes a long time to wind up. But you can get an archer who just stands in the back and fires a volley of arrows. You get a magician who casts a spell that makes fire erupt underneath the enemies, which does an air launch. So really what this game wants you to do is take some of the lessons you've hopefully learned in your life through playing fighting games about um, hitboxes, timing, and distance, and build this formation and your character party around the idea that you want to create instances of hit stun and do juggles to the enemies. Yeah. And, and you want to execute each character's attack based on your knowledge of their timing in order to create these opportunities where you just juggle the shit out of the enemies to do bonus damage. So like <laughs> you want to you want to erupt using like the character examples I provided, right? Perhaps you want to lead in with the main character, use her strike, then use the magician girl to erupt, launch the enemy into the air. While the guy is in the air, you use the archer guy to hit the guy the enemy with a volley of arrows while they're in the air. While that archer guy is unleashing his arrows, you trigger the big sword guy to come in, cue up his swing, so that as soon as the enemy drops, his massive swing hits the enemy, like, home run style. <laughs> like, and, th and that's Valkyrie profile. Like, yeah. collecting these different characters with these different timing and attack styles, and then experimenting with these formations for how to create um, interesting attack combos. Um enemies can be overkilled so like when an enemy is stunned or launched you do bonus damage to them and yeah. the no and the notion is to hit an enemy way past their original health uh, mm -hmm. i think i think you said this was something that happened in blue reflection as well uh, or, yeah, omega, omega quintet you think oh yeah omega quintet yeah omega so, quintet has has like um you have like a visible hit point bar for every enemy in Omega Quintet, and once you empty it, it starts filling back up again, and you have to try and basically overkill the enemy by the amount of their original hit points for significant bonuses. Yeah, yep, so it's the same in Valkyrie Profile, um, and the more of this damage you do, uh, the obviously the greater experience or money you get, the potentiality mm -hmm. for item drops is higher. Um, so it's just a, a pleasure to play, and Valkyrie Profile is one of those games where... Um, Everything is just holistically designed in a beautiful way. So the voice acting is very good. Even the English voice acting is quite legendary in this game yeah. for its cheesiness, but it's like pleasant cheesiness. <laughs> uh, the the soundtrack is classic, like strange, discordant, like Motoi Sakuraba work, like yeah. uh, uh, very very medieval in tone, but also with like hints of electronic in it. So it's like very mm -hmm. unique, um, and just everything comes together to make this game where you just want to be in combat constantly it's it's <laughs> yeah. so satisfying to, to 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 do these combos to execute these air juggles the music is playing it's incredible the victory music is amazing you just want to do it over and over and over again and every character you recruit has a different attack style so like you want to return back to dungeons to experiment with them and it just gets better and better um and like I mentioned, it's it's very inspired by fighting games and, and, and combat-focused side-scrollers. So it was interesting from a design perspective to play this for the first time and come to the realization that they were trying to fuse the, the these more action-focused side-scrolling games with an RPG. And it just yeah. felt so right. Um, then there were there, there's three 
proper games in the Valkyrie Profile series, right? So there's the original Valkyrie Profile. Um, there's Valkyrie Profile, which is on the PS1 and imported in an enhanced version to the PSP. Yeah. Um, there's Valkyrie Profile 2, which is on the PS2. And mm-hmm. that was really interesting because what it did was it expanded on that combat. So in the original Valkyrie Profile, you had side-scrolling dungeons. When you hit an enemy... You went. You transitioned to a battle sequence where you would fight whatever your party versus the enemy party. The, yep. What we call symbol encounters, right? Like every enemy on the screen was indicative of like a party of enemies. Yes. Um, yeah. uh, Valkyrie Profile Two took everything from the original and it expanded upon that greatly. So you have the side-scrolling dungeons again, but mm-hmm. then when you make contact with the enemy, what ends up happening is you get transported to the battle sequence. The battle sequence isn't just an immediate side scrolling like a side on presented battle sequence like tr- like a traditional final fantasy which is how valkyrie profile was what it takes you to is a massive field where your party can run around yeah um almost like dynasty warriors style okay and, and then when you encounter the enemies on that field or they encounter you then the dynamic shifts and then you fight that enemy with the traditional valkyrie profile system Okay. So, it, so it adds a distinct action and, and space management element on top of that layer. So it's really, really great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, then the third Valkyrie profile game is Covenant of the Plume for the DS. Yeah. And that changes things up again by being a, like a Tactics Ogre-style turn-based, grid-based strategy RPG. Yeah. And then when you attack enemies on that strategy grid, it transitions to a traditional Valkyrie profile battle system. Okay. So they uh, traditionally, uh, in traditional Tri-Ace fashion, what they have done is take this amazing core they've built and continue to experiment with it in new ways across the series. Yeah. So you can see why people are always like new Valkyrie profile when, because <laughs> mm, yeah. it's it's just wonderful. Um, and to that degree, from a fan perspective, um, like this this battle system is much beloved. Mm-hmm. Right uh, to the point where there's so many games that are stylized after this. So um, Triace themselves made a game called Exist Archive, yeah. which is the same style battle system uh, outside of the Valkyrie Profile universe. It's a whole new game. Um, but then there have been games in the indie sphere that have also aped this. So the most famous of which is Indivisible by yeah. uh, by the creators of Skullgirls, which is beat for beat uh, essentially the original valkyrie profile uh, mm-hmm. side side scroller dungeons um multiple characters with different attacks to collect and build these formation parties it's very similar in in design yeah. um just lovingly recreated in its own world as well as the that um that neptunia spinoff Yes, super neptunia rpg was also designed in a way as to be a tribute to valkyrie profile um, so this is just a a very very well thought of battle system, uh, like historically, people always think about it fondly. Yeah, cool. It's not a series I have any experience with at all at the moment, but uh, I, th- I think you'd love it a lot. Yeah, I, I have a feeling I would. I mean, I, I have Super Neptune RPG on my shelf, and I have Valkyrie Profile Two, I think, okay, uh, on PS2. Um, but uh, that's that's as far as I've got so far is is, is only those two games. So. Oh yeah, you really should get the PSP version of the original. Mm. It's quite yeah. wonderful. 
Because I, I mean, I don't know what you know about the game from like a narrative standpoint either, but like, the, or like how much you know about Norse mythology. It's it's sort of all to do with like, um, isn't it like sort of related to the afterlife and stuff and sort of yeah yeah. So like, not to like like be like become like mythology like professor, but like the whole the whole like crux of most North mythology Norse mythology is the notion that the world is going to end. Right? There's going to yeah, be rag, yeah. Ragnarok, a giant battle. Of like the gods versus the underworld, and um, the whole notion of like morality and like honor in the Norse folklore is the idea that like if you are an honorable enough warrior, like you should you should die on the battlefield, and yeah. if you die on the battlefield, a Valkyrie will descend, and a Valkyrie will recruit you to become what is called an Einherjar, which mm-hmm. is a soldier in heaven's army, essentially, yeah. right. So in Valkyrie Profile, you play as a Valkyrie, and the parts that are not dungeons, you are scouring the world for souls who are on the verge of death. Yeah. And you observe the end moments of their life, understand like the tragedy of their death, then you come to them and then recruit them to be an Einherjar. Yeah. And the idea is that you are collecting the Einherjar and training them to be the 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 force that will help you win in the final battle against hell's forces. Yeah. Um so it's really like it's a very tragic and somber game because each new character you create is like an episodic structure where you learn about the tragic circumstances of their death. Mm-hmm. It's wonderful. It's, it's very very beautiful. It's a very beautiful exploration of like life, death, tragedy and um kind of redempt like redemption through honor mm. yeah sounds great sounds very very much the sort of thing i i i, I enjoy so i will have to make time for that at some point i would recommend it all right so where are we going next then uh i thought bravely default was worth bringing up yeah um, yeah sure i i really like bravely default system um i really enjoy battle systems that take a um an approach where there's kind of a gamble element, mm-hmm. uh, if that makes sense. Uh, yeah, an, appro- yeah. an approach where, like, you as the player are required to make choices. Now, this that's kind of stupid because you have to always make choices in a traditional battle system. It's all about making choices. But what I'm specifically thinking of is make choices, high-risk choices, where you mm-hmm. can really... The outcome of the battle can hinge on this choice you make, the single choice you make, right? You, you can make a huge gamble that can be like do or die. Yeah. Um, and Bravely Default kind of epitomized that for me with what they call the Brave and Default system. Um, so Bravely Default, um, which is one of my favorite games of all time, period, um, has a system where you can default, which essentially makes, means you block. Uh, when you do this, you build up points, and I believe it was up to four points, four or five points, I don't remember. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you build up this reservoir of points by blocking. Uh, of course, the notion here is you're making a distinct choice not to attack the enemy, to not do damage, to prolong the, the battle by blocking and protecting yourself to build this point. When you have those points, you can make the choice to brave. When you brave, you may spend those points to act multiple times in one turn. 
Yes. So essentially what it's doing is flipping the entire notion of the traditional RPG battle system on its head by allowing you to execute multiple actions in a single turn. Mm-hmm. So so the opportunities for strategy that that opens up are, of course, massive. Uh, take, for, take, for instance, you've got a white mage in your party and you're fighting a particularly challenging boss who does like a wave attack that does a huge amount of damage to every character in your party, you might choose to have your white mage uh, default and block to build points every turn. Just never attack. Yeah. And then after that wave attack, she's got four points built up so she can heal every single character in the party in one turn and bring them yeah. all back to max health. Like yeah. So these are the kind of strategies that it opens you up for. Mm-hmm. Uh, perhaps you're fighting an enemy who um, has a shield that you have to bring down in order to damage them, um, but every turn they refresh that shield if you don't... Uh, every turn they refresh that shield, even if you bring it down. Well, yeah. then the strategy here is to take your character who has the shield breaking ability, have them block for four turns, then have them attack four times in that in the turn once they have enough points. Their first attack is the shield break, and then three of their most devastating hits to get in before that shield is restored. It yeah. really it really forces you to think about timing and the structure of turns in a way that games hadn't done prior. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that's th- that's one of my very favorites, and I have super fond memories of just these uh, amazing strategies paying off. Where just like I did a four times brave, and I like, did like massive damage, and like took an enemy out in like, one turn with like all three <laughs> characters. Like it's just it's super satisfying to like build a strategy and think long game in your head in a way that traditionally like games like of the final fantasy mold don't really promote long game thinking it's more of like a turn to turn survival yeah. kind of thinking yeah but yeah i'd Bra- agree with that yeah so like bravely default has like a very future site focused approach to how to strategize combat and um it was the first RPG I really can think of that made me do that that wasn't a strategy game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you can probably tie that to um, that's probably sort of related to battle systems that allow you to um, influence or affect the turn order in various ways as well. Yes, yeah, like I mean, Grandia and whatnot. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, I mean, Grand Grandia's like. Um, an example that sort of uses its time gauge and so on, but I'm I'm also thinking of stuff like um, Final Fantasy X was the first time I saw this. Oh sure. Um, Final Fantasy X is not my favorite battle system by any means, but it's the first time I saw um, a combat system where you could do certain actions and that would affect what was coming next. So like you you could perform certain actions and that would knock an enemy back in the turn order and so on. Um, I haven't revisited Final Fantasy X for a long time, but my my initial reaction to that was that it was cool, but it didn't feel like you could do that particularly often in that game. Mm-hmm. Um, this this sort of brings me on to um, the main games that I want to talk about today, which are the three Atelier Iris games and Manakemia. They're all from Gust, and I want to talk about all of these because they're all a bit different from each other. Um, this was obviously a very sort of experimental period for Gust, um, but the way they were experimenting made them come out with with four four games that played quite differently. Um, 
the ones with the most similarities are Atelier Iris 3 and Monochemia, which are both, both built on the same sort of core system, whereas Iris 1 and 2 are both on almost completely different systems. But there's an obvious sort of evolutionary process that has gone on between them. So to describe each of those in turn then, so um, the first Atelier Iris game um, is a fairly conventional-seeming turn-based system. So, like, people act according to their speed stat and sort of invisible initiative roles and so on. And so, like, someone gets their turn, they have the choice to do something. But the slight twist that it provided on that formula was the fact that not every action you do is instant. Um, so there were two ways that it implemented this. One was um, it, you would um, you would trigger an action that takes more than... that doesn't activate immediately and your character would have to sort of stand still and do something like chant a spell or something like that uh, and the other implementation was that um, the action would cause the character to leave the screen while they were preparing for this attack so sort of the the, the two good examples of this from atelier iris uh, eternal mana were uh, the character norn has a spell called turn to candy which is basically an instant death spell for a lot of enemies where she she has to spend quite a long time chanting this spell but if she gets it off in most cases she can immediately murder an enemy and turn them into some sort of sweet treat so it's both horrifying and super cute at the same time <laughs> um, turn to candy <laughs> um but yeah, she she is she is very vulnerable while she's casting that because she can't do anything else. Um, at the other end of the spectrum, you've got the character Lita, who has an ability where she um, she disappears to go and find a rock to throw at the enemy, like a, a really big rock, not just like a pebble on the ground or something like a like a lump of cliff, basically. Um, and w when she when you tell her to do that, she leaves the screen, um, so she is completely invulnerable to all attacks while she's doing that as well. Um, so that means you can tactically make use of that move, not just to do damage, because it's a very powerful move that can often interrupt enemy attacks, but also to keep her out of harm's way as well. So if you know a big attack is coming from the enemy, if you've seen an enemy starting off chanting one of their moves that's going to take several several turns for them to get off, you can send Lita off to go and fetch this rock. And by the time she comes back, either the enemy's move will have gone off, or she'll be able to let off this attack, which may well interrupt the enemy's attack in the in the process. So that side of things, it was a sort of really interesting to me in that it was uh, sort of influencing the turn order, but in a slightly different way to how I'd seen it implemented before. And I I, I like that a lot. And there's 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 quite a few things I like about Eternal Miner's battle system. Um, one of which is sort of the implementation of alchemy into it. So. As most people listening know, the Atelier series is, is very much based around the idea of alchemy and making items and so on. The Atelier Iris games are kind of slightly less focused on the crafting side of things than some of the later and the earlier games, but there's still a significant component to it. So um, you can handle alchemy items in two ways in battle in Eternal Mana. So you can either have prepared a bunch of them beforehand uh, in your workshop which means that you've got them on hand and you can then use the protagonist's various skills to affect either how powerful they are or the area of effect that they have. Um, or 
if you have run out of items during battle, you can get him to use mana energy to actually craft them mid-battle. But if you do that, they only ever have their base effect. They never have the wider area of effect or the increased power or anything like that. So you can use that to get yourself out of a pinch in the middle of combat. But ideally, what you want to do is sort of prepare yourself well beforehand and have lots of these items ready to go so that you can beef them up or make them do larger explosions and that sort of thing so that was a really interesting way that sort of a core um aspect of the series was incorporated into the mechanics of the game outside of its usual context so a lot of later atelier games in particular they just have the protagonist is just distinguishes themselves by them being the only one who can use items but in this one anyone can use items but the protagonist is the only one who can actually craft items in mid-combat or affect um the the sort of effectiveness of all these items while he's fighting as well so that was very interesting to me yeah i really uh, i really remember enjoying that whole aspect yeah. of like being able to craft in battle i thought was really interesting yeah yeah it's it, it's it's a lot of fun definitely and uh, then we move on to atelier iris 2 which has some similarities but then also a lot of differences as well so you still have this option to craft stuff in mid battle if you want to um but the twist here is that the the main male protagonist that you're controlling for most of the game um he's not a particularly good alchemist uh, at anything other than using mana energy to just duplicate these items so he doesn't have access to these skills that can affect the power and the range of them like uh, klein does in the eternal mana towards the end of the game the female protagonist who is the the good the sort of good alchemist of the pair of them uh, she joins your party and then you have access to a lot of these same abilities that you do um and there's a there's a very sort of final fantasy 9 style um learning skills from weapons system in that game so like while you have a particular weapon equipped you can make use of the skill that's attached to that weapon and if you fight enough battles with that weapon equipped you then permanently learn that skill and so on so you have to you have to sort of build up this arsenal of skills until you're sort of in a position where you can make use of any of them at will um so that was that was sort of the one similarity between the first two atelier iris games aside from that there were a lot of things that were quite different about it the main one being that it made use of um, a sort of vaguely grandiose style time gauge at the top of the screen so rather than unfolding in strict sort of initiative order turn-based like eternal mana did uh, atelier iris 2 was sort of quasi real time so you had these icons that were sliding across this bar at the top of the screen some for some for your party some for the enemies um, and when they reach the right hand side it's that person's turn to act now you have two types of basic attack in uh, atelier iris 2 so you have a charge attack uh, which uh, which does sort of a normal amount of damage and it increases a skill meter in the corner of the screen which is shared between all of your party members and is then used to unleash various spells and special attacks and so on uh, or you can do what's called a break attack um, which its main function is it doesn't build the skill meter but it does knock the enemy back on the time gauge this is pure so, grandia yeah exactly this is 100 percent. yeah exactly um the thing with that is if you do it too often it becomes less effective each time you do it in succession so you can't just repeatedly knock an enemy back and ensure that they never have a turn you have to sort of use it fairly tactically um and the reason that you might want to do that is um this system in the game called chaining which is where if you knock an enemy far enough back on the time bar into a specially marked part on the left-hand side of it, um, the enemy enters what's called break status, which means that they're sort of stunned, and it also opens a chain, 
So any hits that you land while an enemy is in this break status, while at least one enemy is in this break status, it adds to a chain and it tots up how many hits you do, it tots up how much damage you do in this chain. And the higher that is by the time you finish the battle, um, the more experience points and the more skill points you get. So it's possible to rack up some huge combos if you attack enemies in the right order and when they are um, in this break state, you make sure that you use your special attacks that hit the highest number of times and that sort of thing. So there's some sort of really interesting tactical considerations there. Um, this was then built on somewhat in Atelier Iris 3. Uh, which uh, again changed the way that turn order was implemented uh, into a system that kind of stayed in place for quite a few subsequent games so it definitely stayed in place for minor chemia don't know about minor chemia 2 because i haven't played it yet but it's also definitely present in uh, atelier Rorana uh, to atelier meruru to various degrees as well which is where that the you and your enemies are represented as a line of cards across the top of the screen and um every sort of turn a card moves from the right hand side of the stack to the left hand side they gradually cycle around like that and when someone's card reaches the right hand edge of it um it's their turn to do something so and what happens then is that the action they do determines how far back down the stack they get pushed so different different attacks have different amounts of time that they take so a more powerful attack will will push your card further to the left in the stack making it longer before they can act again uh, but again, there are various ways that you can affect the turn order in that. There are, um, there's quite a strong focus on equipment in Atelier Iris 3. Um, so you can attach various traits to it uh, that affects like the delay rates, they call it. So the higher your delay rate is, the more likely you are to just knock an enemy back with just a regular attack. And then a lot of your skills as well have the knockback ability as well, which will knock them back in time to various degrees as well. So, again, it's a case of learning learning the effects that your basic attacks and your skills do, optimizing your equipment in such a way that you can manipulate the turn order to your advantage, um, and then sort of try and make it as much as possible that you can deal as much damage as you can without the enemy getting a turn, if at all possible. And this ties in with something that we mentioned last time. I talked about Atelier Iris 3, which is Burst. <laughs> <laughs> so so, burst, so edgy. Is, burst is a system that's um, kind of related to the chain system I talked about in Atelier Iris 2, uh, which is all to do with like hit count and that sort of thing. So what happens in Atelier Iris 3 is every hit you do adds to this meter at the bottom of the screen. And so what that means is a lot of your basic attacks do multiple hits now as well. So certain weapons will hit more times but do less damage with each hit. Certain items will hit lots of times. So certain other items will do lots of damage. And when you fill this burst meter, what happens is uh, you start a chain like you do in Atelier Iris 2. So you can try and rack that up as much as possible. And that gives you bonus experience and skill points and stuff after the battle. Uh, but what also happens when that chain is open and the, the burst is happening is that your normal attacks stay the same strength, uh, but all of your special attacks are like 10 times stronger or something ridiculous like that. So um, that is a great way of absolutely mashing bosses. Uh, so you, 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 there are there are items that you can make that are sort of specifically designed for racking up as many hits as possible to increase the burst meter but they do hardly any damage for example so a good way of defeating some of the bosses later in the game is to chuck out a few of these items to get a burst out as quickly as possible and then unleash your most powerful skills to do ridiculous amounts of damage um 
and that that was a sort of a really interesting approach to battle strategy because a lot of the bosses have clearly been designed with that in mind you know, sure. like they have seemingly astronomical hit point counts but as soon as you start attacking them with burst powered special abilities and so on you start making a much more obvious dent in them whereas if you just stick to normal attacks and so on you'll feel like you're never going to beat them so that was really interesting um monochemia like i say makes use of what appears to be exactly the same battle system as atelier iris 3 when you first start playing it but as you progress it starts to kind of distinguish itself a bit more it's still got the burst system um but it's a little bit less generous in terms of how that meter builds up what you need to do in monochemia very much is um focus on enemy weaknesses so like if you just do a normal hit in monochemia you'll hardly add anything to the burst meter but if you hit an enemy's elemental weakness you'll add a huge amount to that meter in one go so hitting an enemy like two or three times with what they're weak against will will get you a burst uh and in that case um it it ups the power of everything you do but not quite as much as it did in the Telia iris 3 so it's a sort of, sort of a subtle difference there the main difference that Manakemia has got, though, is that it's got this... Although it's it's mostly a turn-based system, it's also got this sort of real-time reaction-based system as well, where you have three characters in your front line at any time, and you have three characters in your back line who aren't actively participating in combat. Um, but when you do an attack in Manakemia, if one of your backline characters is fully charged up and you press a button in the right timing you can then call them in to swap with your frontline character and they will get a free attack at that point. And if all three characters in your backline are charged up, you can basically cycle around all three characters and hit an enemy four or five times in a single turn. So that's kind of um, kind of a, a twist on what you were talking about with Bravely Default there, which is sort of turning the standard turn-based structure on its head by allowing you to do multiple things in a single turn that you wouldn't normally be able to do. Um... And that for me so far, I haven't finished Malakimia yet, but that's sort of a, a real sort of standout feature for me because it it gives kind of an element of dynamism and excitingness to these battles that um, sort of a, a straight turn-based system not necessarily lacks, but it's it, it sort of gives gives a nice balance between the sort of strategy of turn-based menu-driven combat and a slight action feel to it as well. It's it's really satisfying when it when it when it works. Yeah, that's one thing I, I've always found interesting about like a really well executed, uh, like traditional turn based RPG battle system is, uh, you know, uh, when I talk to people who like video games but aren't specifically interested in RPGs the way we are, um, one of the things that's really difficult to explain about like RPG battle sequences is the way they use choices and statistics to replicate the dynamism and motion of battle yes. in a, in a, into a turn-based structure. So it's an abstraction of combat yes. where, where, where numbers are king. But it's interesting when games do kind of what you're talking about, which is continue to use the idea of turns and numbers and timing in the abstract sense to replicate the way movement might work on a field mm -hmm. of battle. Like that That's fascinating to me yeah yeah the other thing i find quite fascinating about atelier iris 3 specifically is that sort of the way all this is presented has a big effect on how it feels as well so like atelier iris 3 the the way that its interface is designed and the way that it uses sound effects 
and the way that the camera moves around and the sort of over-the-top special effects and so on, um, it feels like a fighting game. Like, you're, you're picking things from a menu, but it feels like a fighting game. You're building up this meter and you're unleashing special attacks and, like, the background goes all swirly when you're in a burst and that sort of thing. And it's it's the same kind of buzz you get out of, like, something cool happening in a fighting game, but you're picking stuff from a menu. And it's it's all to do with how that's presented. And the Atelier Iris 3 in particular is really good at that. Yeah, and like it just sounds like that dynamic back and forth. Yeah, it really like also plays into the fighting game feel. Mm. It's it's really the same with um, like I was talking about Valkyrie Profile because um, everything you can do, the enemies can do. Right, like yes. the enemies can yeah. juggle you in the same way. So it's all about that back and forth and the kind of the the thrill of the fight in terms of the the dynamic motion and the the, the, the trade offs. Yeah, yeah. Very cool. Yeah. I, I admittedly, I, I, we've talked about the mana games a lot in the past couple weeks since you've been making your way through them, but like, I haven't played the Iris series in the PS2 probably since their launch, so like, mm-hmm. I'm really due for a refresher as well. I really love PS2 era Gust. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. What I, I mean, I, I wrote about this on my Patreon blog yesterday, but I, I think it's worth mentioning here as well. I found it kind of weirdly fascinating and a bit disappointing to return to reviews from when these games first came out because my people, god did they miss the point well, people they didn't play it they didn't play the games they played yeah, like it, the first hour and a half at most and then like yeah. decided they knew everything the game could offer and then yeah yeah i've seen so many reviews that talk about the three atelier iris games as each of them being more of the same and they could not be more different from each other in terms of feel they are all very, very different from one another. They're mechanically unique. They are quite different tonally in many cases. They have a very different focus in terms of narrative. And it, it's it's just weird to see like like a review from sites that I respect, like spending 500 words talking about a 40-hour game and saying, oh, this is just another RPG. It's just like all the other ones that I've played. It's got generic anime-style characters and... Uh, <laughs> and it's uh, it, it just sort of really drives home to me that how much better a, a lot of people are about talking about games these days sure and, I, and I, I, i'm not just sort of blowing our own trumpet here but like generally speaking just the the way that gaming has evolved over the years has meant that people are much more conscious of things like mechanics and narrative design and tone and all that sort of thing and it's it's really a sign of how much talking and thinking about games has matured over the years and it kind of gives the impression that in some ways a lot of these games are very much ahead of their time because it's obvious that there it's obvious that there was an audience for them because they like there's there's numerous sequels to atelier iris and manakemia and the atelier series carried on so there was obviously an audience there but in terms of like professional criticism and commentary and so on yeah these games were ahead of their time and like the supposed professionals who were commentating on these things they, they weren't ready for them they did not know how to talk about them yeah yeah bizarre absolutely yeah. bizarre well i mean games you know it's a whole whole nother topic to talk about the evolution of like games games writing from like yeah hobbyist to to perfect hobbyism to professionalism to kind of a goofy fucking boys club of like people who just knew each other to like 
uh, an actual profession where like people with like writing education like the the, <laughs> the, the way that that entire field had evolved uh, over the past couple couple decades is, is pretty amazing to trace yeah. Um, yeah very 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 interesting but yeah these these games couldn't be more mechanically rich if they tried and they certainly weren't given the justice they were that they deserved when they yeah. when they launched yeah as as i've i've said a few times um in various things that i've written i think a lot of the problem with these games is that they came out in like 2007 to 2009 the xbox 360 came out in 2005 sure so we were two years after gaming had entered quote unquote the hd generation yeah and so for an isometric perspective rpg with sprite based characters to come along while everyone was sort of drooling all over i don't know halo or gears of war or whatever at the time yeah 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 totally totally different and like i know you know one of the things i always think back to is um our friendship like we became friends because of our mutual love of Artonelico. Yes. And uh, and just thinking about how like people did not have the equipment to discuss Artonelico when it came out. <laughs> like, th yeah. this is an RPG, but it's also visual novel, and the choices you make from a narrative perspective also affect the dynamics of combat and the story. Like, people had no idea how to contextualize something like Artonelico in, like, mm -hmm. the, 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 at the time. Yeah. Like the, the the reviews of that are like painful. Yeah. But I digress. Yeah. Yes, yes. I mean, I, I mean, the, the the nice thing about all these games is like they're still reasonably readily accessible these days, and because we are all better equipped to look at and analyze and talk about these games now, we can now appreciate them for what they are, which yeah. is great. And and I mean that's that's what we've been doing today. I think everything we've mentioned so far today has been sort of PS one, PS two era, hasn't it? So yeah, yeah. I mean, I talked about bravely default. That's on the 3DS. I've yeah, got a couple. Yeah. New, I've got a couple newer games I want to mention, but most of the stuff I'm talking about today is older. Yeah. I think the newest game I really want to mention in depth today is Resonance of Fate. Oh and yes, I, yes. Um, but really, like the next game on my list is Guardians Crusade, and that's a PS one game. Mm, yeah. Have you ever played Guardians Crusade? Are you familiar I have not. With I've, Guardians it, like, Crusade? My sole experience with this is I remember seeing an advert for this and thinking, oh, that looks quite interesting, and then nothing. I'm not entirely sure it came out over here, so I, oh, might, it's have, possible. I might have missed the boat on that one. But um, yeah, yeah, let's let's hear it then. So Guardians Crusade is by Tamsoft, which is cool. Yes. So we know like, Tamsoft now is known because of um, Senran Kagura. Yeah. Right? Um, and their involvement with Senran Kagura and the action Neptunia titles. But um, they've been around forever. Mm. <laughs> um, so they. Uh, Guardians Crusade is their turn based RPG for the PS1. And what's really interesting about Guardians Crusade, which is something I don't think I've ever encountered in another game, is that you only have one character in battle. Yeah. It's a turn-based RPG. You only have one character in battle. Uh, this knight, this kind of generic knight that's supposed to be your, like, player insert. He's pretty much mute throughout the game. And then you have, like, the little monster baby that you are, like, in charge of taking care of. And the little monster baby, it's like a vir there's, like, a virtual pet aspect, right? Like, the way yeah. you treat it, what you feed it, and how you raise it 
has a direct effect on the way the baby acts in combat. So like, the baby is there aside of you in combat, um, but it is AI controlled, and that's entirely dictated by like your actions and like how you raise it and how you take care of it. But like you, there's only one character in battle that you control, and that's your little self insert knight. Mm-hmm. Um, everything else is dictated by the AI uh, uh, and how this baby acts. And like sometimes the baby just takes a nap for the whole battle. Like you have no control over it. <laughs> sometimes the baby just eats one of your items. Like it's, there's no, like, it's really weird. And, like, when I was younger and this first came out, like, I was just in, like, this fury where I would, like, buy every RPG. Like, without vetting it, without renting it, without reading about it. So, like, I hated this game so much. Because, like, I couldn't, like, I couldn't control it. I didn't understand it. It's actually, like, despite its cuteness, like, balls hard. Yeah. Like, a really challenging game. But, um... As an adult, looking back on it, man, it had a really interesting battle system with only one controllable character. Uh, all the magic in it are these uh, summons you have to find throughout the world, quote, living toys, end quote, and they have, yeah. di- and they have different um, ways they act. So, like, there are some that you summon, and they also become AI party teammates for that battle. There are some that are just one-shot spells that just happen, Um and then there are others that are like big, powerful summons that you can only use once per battle. So like, there's all kinds of like different rules that dictate like how you can use these living toys and like what they do. Yeah. Um, so some of them allow you to create a third party member for yourself, who is probably a lot more reliable than that stupid baby monster. But but uh, yeah, it's just a really unique game that like challenges you with, um, you know. Uh, making choices as the single playable character in a turn-based combat scenario. Uh, I just, when I play a RPG, like typically I'm like the beginning parts, it's like, Oh, I can't wait to get the next party member. So like the mechanics expand and change, but like in guardians crusade, that doesn't happen. You have to learn how to own this shit with just one person that you can control. And it's very different. Like I've never played anything like it. so, yeah, that sounds really cool. It, it's sort of getting getting kind of vibes of... Um, I've mentioned this a few times before, but Criminal Girls on that as well. Yes, yeah, so, that's something I wanted to mention later too. Yeah, so so Criminal Girls um, is um, a game where y- your protagonist does not participate in combat. Uh, they are supposed to be rehabilitating these girls as they travel through purgatory. And the the whole thing, the whole nature of the story and the mechanics is all built on the idea of trust. So at the beginning of the game, um, none of these girls will do anything that you tell them to. Like uh, every every turn you have in battle, the criminal girls, you choose between suggestions that all four of the girls give, and you pick one of them to do whatever they suggested. And at the beginning of the game, all of them are uh, all of them are just saying, "No, I'm not going to do anything." fuck you basically <laughs> and you have to sort of build up your your trust with them and you you can't specifically tell them what to do but as you progress through the game and as you get to know them a bit better and as you use the other mechanics to build up your level of trust with them you start to feel like you have more control over what's going on even though all you are doing they are still sort of thinking for themselves and giving their own suggestions so yeah, it's it, I I get quite a quite a strong vibe of that from what you're talking about there from yeah. a, from a kind of different perspective. 
Sure, sure. And like I had, um, I had actually, besides listing like specific games I wanted to talk about in more depth, I had just kind of put a mini list together of, um, specific mechanics that are kind mm-hmm. of across a wide variety of games that I really appreciate or find interesting. And one of those mechanics I had in- listed as interesting is games where you don't really control the combat itself, but you more like yeah. direct the action and the characters act based on their own AI protocols, their stats, or, like, how you've developed them. Yeah. So, like, I had listed um, Criminal Girls, obviously, as mm-hmm. one of those titles. Also, the more re- more recently, Hero Land. Uh, oh, yeah, he- yeah, yeah. Hero Land also works like that. Um, or work, cross-work, I think it was called in Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, and the whole idea of Hero Land is you're an employee of this amusement park that, like, people are going on an adventure through, and you are, like, their you are their like guide yeah. through these dungeons. And so every character acts based on AI and their personalities and stats. Um, and you as their guide can issue kind of vague commands and like kind of direct how you hope the battle will go. And mm-hmm. then like, there's a bar that builds up as the combat progresses. And like, you can issue direct commands like once to one character when that bar fills up to like yeah. really control the action. But like, Otherwise, you're just like saying, like, I want you to defend. I want you to attack. Let's see how this plays out. It's more like a simulation than it is like a directly controlled battle sequence. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. like, I find games that take this approach pretty interesting, um, where you you are not directly participating in the battle. Yeah, I don't. It's not something I love because, like, specifically, one of the reasons I love video games is it's a realm where I can control everything. <laughs> but uh but it is interesting to see how games kind of play with this idea that you may want to function as more of a director than a a participant yeah yeah so i don't have too i don't know too many games off the top of my head i mean i guess one could argue games like the tales of games and the star ocean games have a that have a really strong action combat element where with a party where you're where the other characters act on AI and you kind of just direct how you want that AI to, to function. Like you focus on magic, you focus yeah. on defense, have a similar bent, but I never felt like Tails was in the same sphere because you could A, control your player character and B, hit the trigger to switch yeah. to the other characters and control them directly if you wished. So yeah. it's not, not, not quite the same thing because the battle sequence themselves aren't structured around the notion that you are directing combat rather than participating in it. Like in mm-hmm. Tales and Star Ocean, you're still a direct participant and can very much control what happens. Yeah. I think um, Xenoblade 2 is a good one to bring up in that sort of mold as well because the AI in that is very good at determining what you are doing as the character that you're playing as. Yeah. So like Xenoblade 2 is very good at um, progressing through the combos that you're suggesting. Yes. and sort of and sort of picking the right combos that will create those long chains of things that, that that go on there so that you've still got an element of choice there but you are also sort of relying on your party members and sort of trusting them to make the right decisions along the way as well so that yeah. that was always an interesting one in that sort of mold for me as well xenoblade 2 is perhaps one of the greatest battle systems ever made mm, and it's uh, wonderful we we could i mean we've already we've already been talking for an hour now about rpg combat <laughs> systems we i could easily talk do like a 2 hour lecture on like the nuances of xenoblade 2's combat and like the the, <laughs> the 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 layers and the possibilities and how engaging it is um it, it more expertly than any game i've ever played combines 
active engagement strategy and the notion that there that every battle is a unique puzzle to be solved yeah and combines these things in a way where uh, i think about it constantly still mm. like like still think about xenoblade 2's like combat and like as a master class and like design yeah but it's just another open world anime rpg Herd, Ooh, herder, herder. Herder. Yeah. Uh, yeah i was gonna say there are people who hate that game and i don't really understand it's the least hateable game ever made. It's <laughs> it's so beautiful. It's so beautifully designed within an inch of its life. It's engaging from a visual and artistic perspective. The cast is literally the most delightful assembly of sweet dum dums in the history of the genre. Like, I don't even like. I don't. I don't need to go off. I'm sorry. I don't mean to rant about like it's. Oh, it's so good. No, no, no. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. All right. What else have you got on your list then? What else have I got on my list? I have got on my list uh, Triace's Resonance of Fate. Yes. Oh, the 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 game of maths. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So literally, like, <laughs> I hope you like geometry. Like, so uh, Re- Resonance of Fate is a very unique breed of RPG that we don't see super often where, like, the focus of the entire game is combat. Yeah. There are no real dungeons. The dungeons are just like these menus that you navigate where you like you go to like floors or rooms. Um, and then each floor or room of the dungeon that you select out of a menu is a combat encounter. So there's a town yeah. you can run around in to like customize your characters and collect items and advance the story. But um, the majority of Triace is literally just a series of presented battle challenges. So when the meat of the game is its combat, you better bet the combat is designed in an interesting way. And this is all going back to what I was saying earlier about Tri-Ace. So Resonance of Fate is available on the PS3, I think the 360? Um, But then it's also also been recently remastered and available. Yeah, it's also recently been remastered and is available on current consoles. So the whole thing with uh, with Resonance of Fate is like, hey, kids... Did, did you love the Matrix and or Equilibrium? Do you think like fancy gunplay is cool? Would you like to play an RPG all about acrobatic gunplay where like guns are highly fetishized? Like that's Triace. <laughs> I'm not, not Triace. That's Resonance. That's yeah. Triace's Resonance of Fate. Um, I keep trying calling the game Triace. I think because fucking triangles are so important in in Resonance of Fate. Um, <laughs> Yeah. So, so the whole idea behind Resonance of Fate is like all the weapons are guns. Um, like when you collect and buy weapons, you collect guns and you modify guns, new sights, new barrels, new stocks. It's like the Call of Duty of RPGs. Um, <laughs> combat in Resonance of Fate is all about orchestrating the battlefield. So each battle you are given a, a field and there's cover, uh, boxes, platforms of different elevation, and when it's your turn, you move your character across the battlefield by, like, drawing a line. The character will run along that line, and they will attack enemies with their guns as they run past the enemies. Yeah. So, every character has a different style of gun. Like, one character uses, like, handguns, one character uses, like, uh, semi-machine guns, um... And 
They, so they have, they have varying ranges, they have different strengths and weaknesses, and they have different things they can do. So like if you run a character like directly through an enemy, they will run to the enemy, jump over the enemy, do like an acrobatic backflip, like rain bullets down on them from above. <laughs> they might do a lot of damage to that enemy if that enemy's not wearing a helmet or protecting itself from overhead. So you have to pay attention to stuff like that. Yeah. Um, Likewise, they may run, if you just have them run by an enemy, they'll fire at that enemy as they run by it and then like jump and take cover. Like they'll do less damage, uh, but they'll be exposing themselves less because they'll be moving, right? Um, then that build, that builds the notion of enemy placement and understanding where the enemies are in the character on the field because the movement of your characters and your ability to create scenarios where they will be positioned in certain formations or their lines may cross intersect or draw shapes allows you to pull off like special like team attacks of like different effects okay so it's all about understanding where your friends are in position to each other and where the enemies are in position to the positions of your friends so like, can you draw a clean triangle that encloses an enemy with all three characters, right? And then they'll do like a persona style, like team up where they'll all just like unload. Like, yeah. and you feel like a goddamn genius when you make this stuff happen. <laughs> it's really, really rewarding, but also extremely challenging. It is one of those games where you need to sit through tutorials for like an hour and a half to like properly understand the game. But if you are a mechanics guy or gal, uh, Residence of Fate is a game for you because mm. it is very challenging and it is focused entirely on its combat system. It's also a really neat world with a really neat narrative. Um, there's a cool focus on like style, like collecting clothing, like stylish yeah. clothing, which is really cool. Um, but yeah, it's just you mod your guns to have different effects in battle and then you just fight and fight and fight and like stretch the limits of this system to survive and win in different ways and people hated it <laughs> <laughs> surprise that's one of those games that sort of people hated back in the day but as soon as they announced a remaster there were lots of people who were going oh my god i love this game yeah well, like guys like you and me crawling out of, crawling out of the woodwork like uh, yeah. yeah it was like critically panned uh, i think like the people hate it was like the age of like I'm too smart for video games when, like, this yeah. first came out. And it's like, because, like, I think there was a character whose, like, name was, like, a thinly veiled, like, masturbation joke. <laughs> so, like, every review was just like, I hate this guy. Aren't we better than this? It's like, no, no. How about you focus on the goddamn ingenious combat design that defines this game instead of, like, being angry because, like, one character's name is a dick joke. <laughs> like like okay that's stupid i didn't like it either but like i do appreciate the the master class in unique strategy that the rest of the game is <laughs> like, so maybe don't give it a seven because you think one joke fell flat you dumb dums mm. yeah it's a really really cool game very different once again just like when i was talking about with um with uh, Guardians Crusade, I've never seen its like again. I've never seen yeah. anything that does what this game does. Uh, Try Ace takes gambles. Always has. 
I don't really know what they're doing anymore. Just making like crappy mobile phone versions of Valkyrie Profile because that's what all great design studios do now. But yes, yes, sad but true. But they they used to be like the the masters of unique combat and design elements in the genre. This is one of their tr last greats, like their last true greats. Like I know there's a Star Ocean on the PS4, but like it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't super special. This was one of one of their last great experimental games. Yeah. Yeah, we'll definitely have to give that a go at some point. It's it's one that I I know you're going to have to spend a lot of time with to sort of really appreciate and understand and get the best out of it. So. Uh, yeah, I've held off on it so far, but it's it's one that's been sitting on my shelf waiting for me for quite a while. So, at some point, as with so many other things. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of fun. It's a, it's a lot of fun. It really makes you... It's really... It's a... It's a much like we were talking about with, with uh, Xenosaga 2, or Xenoblade 2. It's just... Yeah. When you do it right, and you engage with the combat on its own terms, you learn the rules, and you execute properly... It makes you feel like the smartest person on the planet. Yeah. And it's, it's really delightful. Yeah, so that's Resonance of Fate. Um, mm -hmm. Really cool game. Uh, that's really the last major title I had that I wanted to dig into in particular depth. I just had kind of one more little note uh, about a, a general mechanic that I like, which is um, games where there's an active time-focused element. Okay. S stuff like uh, Mario RPG, Paper Mario, Mario and Luigi, Legend of Dragoon, yep. where like you press A to like do additional damage, like with the right timing, or like you mm -hmm. know, like or like defend with timing. Like, how do you yeah. feel about those games that have that? I really think that's a lot of fun. Yeah, I, I like it because it, it sort of creates a, a feeling of additional involvement in it, and like I, I've I've enjoyed this ever since Final Fantasy VIII did it. Yeah, with the um, Gunblade. Yeah, exactly. It just it just gave a much stronger feeling of impact to attacks. Yeah, because you, you as your character is hitting something, you're hitting something as well, and it just gives this really nice sort of physical feeling to it as well. It makes you feel a lot more involved in it. So yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of this, and the character swapping mechanic I talked about with Manakemia very much has that feel to it as well, because that's all sort of timing based as well. Oh, okay. So, yeah. Yeah, really, really like when games do this. Like, Legend of Dragoon had those cool, like, boxes that would, like, show mm -hmm. up with, like, the right timing. Like, they would, like, circle in, and you had to hit it, like, with the when it, when it lit up the right color. Like, I love that stuff. Oh, yeah, that's right. Was was that the one where you had to sort of do sort of various button combinations as well? I think I so. Else? Yeah. No, I, I think so. Like, for, like, some I've, of the I've never actually moves. played the full version of Legend of Dragoon. I've, I've, I've played a demo, I think, at some point. But, yeah, I, I have a, a vague memory of sort of having to put in sort of vaguely fighting game style button combinations at various points as well <laughs> legend of dragoon is like a game people love to hate yeah like i like it's one of those games that like retroactively people are like it wasn't very good it was just <laughs> it was just trying to be final fantasy 7 but the plot's generic and whatever but like i have i know people who love this game like i know yeah, people like it's a, it's fun, it's great. Like and it's one of those games like people are like, oh, we need a new Legend of Dragoon, and like all like the, the like, the, the folks come out of the woodwork like, like the Sonic isn't was never good. People, like, <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Legend of Dragoon was generic garbage with like crappy pre-rendered backgrounds and a generic plot, and the characters had no personalities. <laughs> you know what? You know what? It also was a fun video game you could play. 
Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, so eat it. Eat a butt. Like, I don't if care. If I remember rightly, I think someone I'm following on Twitter is playing through it right now. So, yeah, it's it's still got people who love it. So, Like, is it great? No. Is it A+. plus? No. It's like, But it's like a solid B-tier, like, RPG yeah. with, like, a cool setting and fun design. And yeah. It's got dragons and dragon armor. I don't know. <laughs> Learn to enjoy life. <laughs> Play Legend of Dragoon. Joy. Never. I must moan on the internet all day and no. not enjoy anything ever. No. <sighs> uh, so yeah, that's all I've got. Any other any other games that you wanted to bring up? No, I think we're good. I think that's a fairly comprehensive coverage of uh, a variety of different interesting games there. So yeah, and all different to the the ones we talked about last time as well. So that's great. Uh, so yeah, check all those games out if you get the opportunity to. Some of them are a little harder to find these days than others, particularly like the, the Atelier Iris games and Manakemia games, unfortunately, are a little bit harder to get hold of these days. So I think I think you said Manakemia can get hold of reasonably easily. but The first uh, one is quite inexpensive, but the second yeah. one I think was printed in much lower quantities. So it's one of those yeah. games where like used copies are going for what new copies were at launch kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, Atelier Iris one, two, and three have all kind of reached that stage here now. They're about they're about sort of twenty pounds when I picked them up a few years back, but they've they've kind of gone up in price quite a bit recently. So they're they're still out there, but you just might have to pay a bit more than you might be used to paying for for PS2 games uh, for them. But they're 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 well worth your time, well worth your time and money, especially if you enjoy substantial RPGs. Atelier Iris Three was like fifty hours. I'm not expecting that from an Atelier game. Like uh, I'm used to Atelier games being like twenty hours, <laughs> and then that one went and devoured fifty hours of my life. That's a great game. I loved it. Anyway, all right. Uh, so let's wrap that up there for now. Then. So would you like to tell people where to find you online? Sure. As always, you can find my artwork at mrgilderpixels.com, as well as uh, on Instagram as mrgilderpixels, where I always post my work in progress stuff as well as finished pieces. Marvelous. And you can find me on MarioGaming.net writing about stuff every weekday, and on YouTube doing various things, including the Atari A to Z series of Atari 8-bit, Atari ST, and Atari Home Console games. Um, I've started a new video series on YouTube recently called Short Play as well, which is sort of quick tours of about half an hour or so of games that I just like, that I feel like talking about. So uh, check that out if you get the chance. Uh, it'll super be super pleasant. A variety of different things uh, covered on there over the, over the coming weeks. Uh, and the Final Fantasy Marathon continues on Fridays as well. Uh, if you are watching this on YouTube, you can also subscribe to an audio-only version on SoundCloud. And if you're listening on SoundCloud, you can subscribe to me on YouTube to see a video version of this podcast and all the stuff I just mentioned as well. So, just remains for us to say, as always, thank you very much for watching and or listening, and we'll see you again next time. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, remember you can watch a video version of it over on YouTube. Be sure to check out moegamer.net for new articles on Japanese and Japanese-inspired video games, new and old, every weekday. Every month, Moegamer features an in-depth exploration of an individual game or series as its cover game, so be sure to check the archives to see if your favourite has had a deep dive yet. If you'd like to support the site directly, please consider becoming a patron or buying me a coffee. You can find links to do both over on moegamer.net. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.